Welcome to this week's episode of From Broadcast Depth, a retrospective podcast about the television series Lost. My name's Ben Lundy. With me, exploring the island, uh, past, present, future. Kevin, it feels like we might be end up end up doing this forever. Is Kevin Ford? How are you, Kevin? Past, present, future, or a new location? When is the island? Where is the island? I, I know the season finales are always pretty dense, but with an extra hour and so many things going on. This one feels particularly dense, but also very, very uh, fulfilling, I thought. You know, you you would think that the focus, I guess, would be probably on trying to top season three because season three's finale is spoken of as, you know, being one of the most uh, crazy twist lost endings of all time. TV show and uh, series finales, episode finales, you name it, no matter what, it's just one of the best twists of, of all time. And I feel like there was probably pressure uh, for this finale to to top that, but I think they were probably more just focused on trying to get this one, you know, in the can with the writer's strike having messed up the timeline and everything, you know, and it's just so fast paced. You don't get a chance to stop and collect your thoughts or even breathe, you know? Yeah. To me, this, and, and this may speak to why you like this season so much. I feel like this is one of the most clean season finales of Lost in that a lot of the mysteries brought up at the beginning or during the duration of season four are also answered at the end by the end of season four. 100%. You're 100% right. One of the things that I have even in my notes here is how like the, the sort of the symmetry of season four is perfect. Structurally, it's perfect. We start from a place of, okay, we know they're going to get off the island at some point. And then the span of the season through flashbacks, flash forwards, and present day stuff is to get us to that point and then sort of leave us salivating for the future. And spoiler alert, I think they do a freaking amazing job of that with this this massive three-parter that has so much to accomplish. Oh, yes. Something I found interesting before we even get into this is how did you watch these? Did you watch these on DVD? Yes. Okay. And I assume, though, you watched both of these when they originally broadcast on television. Yes. Okay. So I, too, watched this on Blu-ray, and I was doing the previously ons because I'm also covering the flashback stuff. And what I noticed for part one was uh, both on the DVD and Blu-ray, there is no previously on, but on Lostpedia, it states that there was a previously on for part one. And then I noticed it looks like they rebroadcast part one either the day before or the hour before parts two and three aired with some additional stuff into it. Mm. That you were watching at the time, do you kind of want to elaborate on what's going on there? Well, so what you might be thinking of, I can't remember specifically with this finale, but I know, first of all, let me just say, they they seem to get these season finales all wonky with the parts and things like that because it's, it's parts one, two, and three. It's three hours, but then Exodus back in season one was parts one and two where part one was an hour and part two was two hours. It's like the consistency there is a little bit flabbergasting sometimes but as far as the actual airing what you're talking about one of the things that we haven't really talked about yet uh was by this point in the series they had actually gotten into the habit of doing lost reruns with pop-up video style trivia tidbits or or information that would play on the bottom of the screen with these little uh you know annotations that would pop up is that what you mean when you say like uh they replayed it with more information what I saw was that they called it an enhanced version of this. That's what, that, yep. Okay. That's what they called it, yep. Okay, and so it sounds like in the original broadcast, and I'll just jump ahead to this, in the um, press conference with the Oceanic Six, 
sounded like the way I read it, that the Boone, Libby and Charlie being the other three who lived wasn't even discussed in the original airing, but was added to the enhanced version. Or maybe I'm just reading that incorrectly. I think there was a little bit of controversy. Okay, so here's I, I appreciate you mentioning the enhanced because that that was the thing I couldn't remember is what they actually called these. They called them enhanced versions of the episodes. You can't get these on DVD or anything like that. All it is is the episode itself with the extra like captions on the bottom just telling you stuff. So, you know, by this point, we're at the end of season four. Lost has definitely lost viewers at this point. It's not because it's become a bad show or anything like that. It's because it's a serial show where over time people are going to stop watching because once you get off that train, it's hard to get back on. You know, if you if you stop watching when they're trying to merge the top the tribes of the the uh, tail section people and the, uh, the the season one survivors, and you turn the TV back on, and some guy you've never met before is talking about moving the island. You know, yeah. it's it's that's hard. <laughs> um, so they were constantly trying to come up with ways to get the audience caught up, and they would do these things like YouTube videos. Lost in eight minutes and 15 seconds, everything you need to know. They even did a lost in four minutes and 23 seconds, I think. They were real cute with that. Of Um, course. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, the enhanced, then they also had special. Now, this is they had been doing, I think, all the way since back in the first seasons. They would have like an hour-long special that was just a recap you know, just trying to bring people up to speed. But by end of season four, you got so much, you can't even do that. So they would do these enhanced episodes. As far as what you're talking about, I think there was some controversy where uh, the whole thing of uh, Boone, Libby, and Charlie being brought up in the press conference is that there was some extra information uh, given in the captions of the enhanced version uh, that people sort of felt should have been just included in the show itself. Uh, I just know that occasionally since the the there was obviously some writer who was writing the captions for the enhanced version that uh, it either sort of gave away too much or gave maybe more insight into the writer's room and people kind of got confused by what was official and what wasn't. Does that make sense? It does to an extent. The only reason I say that is because Lostpedia says this information was revealed in the enhanced episode aired on May 29th. And the stuff that they talk about was all things that were in the broadcast on DVD and Blu-ray hmm. watch, such as Jack naming the other three survivors and what happened to them. And then Saeed saying he will not be returning to Iraq. That all happens not in caption form. Right. Um, but the Lostpedia makes the distinction that this was only on the 529 airing and on the initial broadcast back on, I think May 15th is when this uh, part one aired. So that's why yeah. I thought maybe there was something where they got rid of the, previously on and added this in because they needed the time, but also it was a way for them to rebroadcast the episode and get first time viewers to go back and watch the whole episode mm-hmm. again, knowing that the diehard people on the internet would a hundred percent rewatch the entire hour for three minutes of extra stuff. I mean, now that you're, now that you're saying that, that is, that is tickling somewhere way in the way back part of my brain. I remember something about that, but that uh, I, I will be completely honest is something that's been lost in the, you know, in the ether of, of my lost memories okay. um, for this show. But it, but it sounds, I, that, I, I remember something about that now that you mention it, yeah. Well, that enhanced version, because, uh, okay, so part one aired on May 15th, part two and three aired on May 29th, as did the enhanced version. So my guess is uh-huh. they put this on right before two and three premiered yeah. to get people, A, caught up, and then B, uh, the people who already watched it, a uh, reason to tune back in to catch that little bit of information. Uh, it sounds like they just slipped in a little bit of extra footage. 
Yeah, and it, yeah. and it's yeah. fun. It's it's fun to see that they named they they specifically the Oceanic Six picked three people right. to to say these are the three people we're going to pretend yeah. survived and died of. It helps the story. Causes. It helps it stay believable. It does stay believable, but it also you know makes you think why did they choose those three people? But yeah, we can we can talk about now. That, that was a it. subject of discussion. I remember you know being hotly debated. Yeah. But yeah, we can talk about that as we go. Sure. Uh, what I will say is we're, we'll get into part one now. Obviously, all of this is written by Lindelof and, and Cuse, naturally. And this is all from Lostpedia. What the previously on for, for part one that neither of us saw was all stuff from, from Cabin Fever, where Kimi informs Captain Galt that there's a secondary protocol that says to torch the islands. Frank dropping the satellite phone on the beach camp that's tracking the helicopter and then, of course, the scene of Locke going into the cabin to see Christian Shepard, who says he could speak on behalf of Jacob. And then, of course, Locke telling Ben that they're supposed to move the island. Uh, so that was on the original May 15th broadcast, but not on the May 29th broadcast, which sounds like that is the version that is on the Blu-ray and DVD is the enhanced version without the previously on. Yes, that is what I watched as well. Okay, so Ben, since you cover the on-island stuff, do you want to uh, take it away here for we'll part take it uno? Away. All right. So we're doing things a little bit differently this time. We know there's so much material to cover with these three episodes. We're just going to kind of give a bullet point recap of uh, the highlights of uh, important plot points of each of the three parts one at a time. And then we'll talk, stop and talk about certain scenes and notes that we had and things like that as we go. Does that sound about what, like what we're doing? Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. No Place Like Home Part 1, Season 4, Episode 12, Days 99 through 100 on the island. Just so we know where we are, because that's getting confusing. So the beach camp is listening into this satellite phone that Frank dropped and learns that the helicopter is heading towards the Orchid. Uh, Daniel knows what that is and tells Charlotte that they have to get off the island right now. So that means something to him. So we have Jack and Kate that go to follow the chopper. They run into Sawyer and Miles in the jungle, uh, and they tell them what happened at the barracks, but Jack insists on chasing the chopper anyway, even though we now think these are probably bad guys, or we know they're bad guys. Sawyer goes along with him, and when they find the helicopter, the mercenaries are gone, and Frank is handcuffed to the chopper. Frank tells them that the mercenaries are going to kill whoever's with Ben, and of course to Sawyer, that's a realization because he says that Jack, tells Jack that Hurley is with Ben and Locke. Saeed gets back on the island, uh, gets back to the island on the raft uh, to start ferrying people back to the freighter. Daniel volunteers to help drive the raft so that Saeed can join the group following the helicopter, uh, which Kate also goes along with Saeed. And then they get ambushed by the others, led by Richard Alpert in their jungle creep clothes, so they now look less modern. Daniel arrives at the freighter with the first group of survivors, including Sun and Jin. When they arrive, they see Michael, and he tries to explain why he's there. Meanwhile, the boat uh, should be all fixed now, but there's some kind of interference on board, and Desmond discovers a huge mountain of C4 left behind on the boat, rigged and ready to blow. Meanwhile, Hurley, Ben, and Locke are heading for the Orchid to move the island. They stop along the way to signal the others with a mirror. Uh, of course, this is a little bit earlier in the episode, but we see when they kind of meet up later. When they arrive, they find that the mercenaries are already at the Orchid station. Ben gives Locke instructions on how to open the underground portion of the station, then surrenders himself to the mercenaries. And we end the episode with a montage of all of the characters who we know get off the island, so the Oceanic Six and Ben, in all of their separate situations. Uh, ben surrenders, Hurley's with Locke, uh, Jack is trying to rescue Hurley, 
Sun and Aaron are on the freighter and Kate and Saeed are prisoners of the others. So this is genius, Kevin. I feel like this is, we're talking about structure right before we started recording. And obviously what they're doing here is they're playing with the fact that you know who gets off the island. There's no suspense there because we know the six that get off the island. The question is, how the hell do they all end up in the same place? You know, because as of the end of this first part, they're all over the island in different places. And I think the the writers are deliberately teasing you with the with that with this montage at the end that shows them all over the place, having no clue where these people are are, are how they're going to end up together. I yeah, great. and that's deliberate in the uh, the on location for the finale on the Blu-ray that I watched. And uh, Damon Lindelof pretty much says exactly what you just did. In, in essence, the stakes are kind of out of who gets off the island because we know. So the whole point of ending part one, which again was two weeks before parts two and three aired, was getting these six people as far away from each other as we possibly could. And they even show like in the writer's room a map of the island with like their faces cut out and then prominently placed on where they're supposed <laughs> to be by the end of part one. And so now the the whole question is how the heck do these six people get together? Interestingly enough, too, is some of these scenes – were shot before a script was finished. Really? Yeah, I I, I specifically remember uh, on the freighter. It was uh, it was is it Jack Bender, the executive producer, who they go to for all these big big he, episodes. He's a director. He directs all the big episodes. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, he's shooting stuff on the freighter. I think it's in even parts two or three. And he's like, so we're doing this, and uh, we have outlines, but we don't have a script yet. Uh, and I guess that's just <laughs> the nature of the writer strike. But given uh, I'm sure time demands, budgets, things like that. They just had to start shooting some things without a fully fl- yeah. uh, flushed out script. Does that and mean you would shoot like some B-roll or something, like just some establishing shots? Or mm-hmm. yeah. or, or just even just like, a, okay, we know for sure this scene is going to happen. Here's the, here's the important parts of it. Go. Even Hurley's like, all right, well, I'm on the freighter now. Not sure how I get here or what's going on, but uh, <laughs> here we are. So I thought that was really fun that that some of this stuff was uh, was shot in advance of the script Man. being finished. Well, and it's amazing how al- almost completely seamless it is at the end of it for such a mad dash to the finish line with this season. Uh, unless you're really, really, you know, squinting your eyes to, that you would notice a drop in quality. I think there were like two shots that I saw that looked a little rough, like needed another round in the editor's room or something. But yeah. other than that, it was just, wow. It was it pulled off pretty seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure it might've just been something where they wrote it and they realized, crap, we're 30 pages heavy. We yeah. need that extra hour. So <laughs> let's see if we can get that first before we yeah. continue on here. So it might've been a, a byproduct of that, but I mean, there's, there's no way you could have told in this or the, the second part that this, that some of this stuff was shot without a script. It's all pretty flawless. Yeah. So a couple quick notes about the present time thing, the orchid, did we talk previously about the Orchid Station before we got to this point, like how it was teased at the previous year's Comic-Con? Did we talk about any of that? No, we didn't. And we've teased that there's this unknown Dharma mm-hmm. uh, logo shown in the season, but right. I don't remember discussing the Comic-Con yeah. thing at all. So, you know, we learned the name of the of the uh, the station, the Orchid. And of course, we've seen its symbol a couple times up at this point. But there was also a Comic-Con video from the previous year's San Diego Comic-Con. I think we I, I, either you or both of us or I made a deliberate choice not to mention it up to this point because it is kind of spoilery. It basically reveals what is going on that we that we're about to talk about in parts two and three. I think it's it's just interesting because by the time the orchid is mentioned on this episode, most fans were already well aware of its existence and were basically like, well, we got to see the orchid before the end of this season. So that was not really a, a spoiler 
for folks who were really heavy in the fandom and stayed, paid attention to things like the Comic-Con and stuff like that. They actually had, what they did was they aired an outtake or a quote unquote outtake of the Dharma video that uh, that Locke is going to watch in part two. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit there. But uh, just so you know, when we get the reveal of the orchid, and it's actually revealed in Daniel's notebook of all places, the kind of the name of the place with the, you know, his own drawing of the symbol um, is actually familiar to quite a, a good percentage of the lost fandom. Um, so it's kind of an interesting choice there. But they always use Comic-Con to do a lot of teasing, of course. Of course. I felt like I really enjoyed seeing Sun and Jin reunite with Michael because of the sort of the mixed feelings that that brought out in them. I think it was, you know, it's a shame that he didn't get to reunite with more people, but like that this, that's, this particular scene was really good um, as opposed to like with Desmond doesn't know Michael, you know, so that wasn't as much of an emotional impact. But this, I, I thought you just could feel all three actors bringing forth the tension there in these people that had become really good friends, but then something terrible happened. You know, Michael did something that drove them all apart. I, I really enjoyed that scene. Yeah, and you got the Raft Buddies coming back together to, to reunite. Plus, exactly. Plus Michael and, and Son had a lot of growth and in, in interaction and bonding in season one to sure. just temper the flares that existed between him and Jin. So right. it, it it did bring back a lot of emotions, these, these characters who built a, a – great community with one another in seasons one part of two coming back together here at the end of season four now what i'm curious to hear about kevin is your reaction to seeing the others return at the end of this episode when they uh surround kate and saeed you know at gunpoint and of course they're they're looking it's kind of like another transition for them because they look a little bit more like they used to look when we thought they were just sort of the jungle creeps that michael referred to as hillbillies mm-hmm but not quite. Like they don't look grimy. Like they're deliberate. I mean, they're not wearing fake beards. Obviously, they're not grimy to the point where like they're trying to pretend to be something to the, that they're not. I feel like this is almost like the way they would look normally when they're not living in barracks and pretending to be scientists. Does that make sense? Yeah, I yeah, I would agree with that. What was your how? What were your thoughts about seeing them? Because we haven't seen the others for an entire season. Right. So I I was expecting to see them again. To me, in my head, when they were putting this protocol together and said there, there's only one place that he was going to go. I actually didn't expect it to be the orchid. I kind of expected it to be the temple mm. where, where the, the others were or that the orchid and the temple were the same thing. Okay. So, cause that's where we, uh, that's where we've led to believe the others have been this whole time leaving the barracks to go to the temple for, for, for safety. Right. So why are they out of the temple? Do they happen to catch them while they're on watch or some other duty of sorts? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I assume that they don't just all sit in the temple all the time. They have to have a presence elsewhere because uh, they got that thing where they signaled to uh, Ben right. early on in the episode. And uh, whatever he communicated to them probably had something to do with, uh, hey, we're going to need your help or something like that. And uh, I guess there's uh, still enough loyalty there that they would do it. But yeah, whether they stumbled upon Kate and Saeed by mistake or if they were deliberately looking for them, I don't know. But mm-hmm. I, what I, what struck me is that I was like, this is going to sound crazy, but I remember the first time I watched this and feeling actually comforted to see the others. Hmm. It, like in the sense that like 
okay, here's these, this is like the devil we know. <laughs> We've, the, the, the mercenaries, and in particular Kevin Durand as Kimi, I cannot say it often enough, have been doing such a good job of being supremely evil uh, and just absolutely like a hundred times like more like sinister and evil than uh, I feel like just seeing the others as almost be like, oh, hey, it's you guys. What's up? And not that there's no tension there, when, but I just don't feel like I could tell that from a plot standpoint, they weren't suddenly going to become the threat again in this episode. It was like, however, like they're a wild card getting thrown into this survivors versus freighter mercenaries conflict that's been going on for a season now, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Although I have a feeling when, when I saw them, it was a bit of relief too, because you knew in this war, they were likely to, to, to aid our survivors because they don't want to see the island get destroyed. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. And it was almost like a slow progression where you kind of realize that maybe the elements of the others that seemed so terrifying in the beginning were sort of giving way to understanding a little bit more about what was going on in the bigger picture. And then it wasn't quite as black and white as it was before. So I think that starts here. It's really it's really fascinating. So, um, yeah, those are my those are some observations miscellaneous that I had about the present time stuff did any, anything else that jumped out to you no but that's you know it's like what colonel mustard says in a uh, clue their strength in numbers my friend that's right so how are they going to get rid of the the evil that is kimi and his mercenaries oh well God. here are the others <laughs> yeah and you know this foreshadowed a huge showdown of course it's kind of the way the episode works but before then we've got some flash forwards to do Boy, do we. There are significantly more flashes in this episode than there are the other two. So what we start with is there's two men flying this plane back with a female aboard. And this female is actually a representative of Oceanic Airlines. And she walks to the back of the plane where we see all of our Oceanic six sitting there. And she prepares them to land, telling them that, you know, your family is already there. There's going to be a lot of press, but you don't have to speak to them. But Jack already says that they they feel comfortable talking to them. So you get the idea that they've already corroborated this fake story that they've been telling back on land. Right. Um, so they land and we get a, a beautiful reunion scene. Pearly's parents are there to greet him. Mr. Pike and his wife are there to meet son. Uh, Jack's mother, who we haven't seen since I don't think White Rabbit. She has been here. in literally one episode up to this point. Yeah. yeah so, so this, I think uh, I read this is the longest period of episode of time that a character has not been seen. Like something like 75 episodes since mm. the last time we saw his mom. Wow. Uh, there's nobody there for Saeed or Kate, but Hurley introduces Saeed to his parents and they give him a big old hug. And then we jump to the press conference. Now, I didn't go through the whole details of their story, but essentially they used, it sounds like to me, Ben, they used the location of the fake plane crash to utilize that to say, to make that the real plane crash and say, right. yes, we crashed here. We landed on this uninhabited island and the current carried us, that current carried us there. Then we found this raft and we used that to get to this other land and that's where we found and ultimately brought home. But we know this is all a BS story. The BS story also includes how Kate was the one who gave birth to Aaron on the island. Jack mentions that it was Boone Carlisle, uh, Libby, and Charlie Pace were the three who survived and died later on. And Sun even says that her husband, Jin, never made it off the plane. Uh, some of the other things, there's a bunch of questions. And the, the big things take away here are that Hurley says he still wants nothing to do with the money, which his father looks disappointed in hearing. Said says he's not going back to Iraq because there's nothing there for them. 
there's this reporter who tries to pull coals in the story of Kate being pregnant, but uh, he gets shut down by the oceanic woman because he brings up her criminal charges. And Saeed says that there's absolutely no way anybody else would have survived the crash. Cause I think the reporter is saying, well, it's a miracle. Even you guys did. So is it possible that other people survive the crash? And then once the press conference is over, the woman uh, takes Saeed outside where he meets uh, Nadia and they embrace. So Nadia and Saeed are uh, back together here. And um, you can put that on one of those lists of things of like things that lost fans thought they'd never get to see. You know, like you, you see, I think, well, with Nadia, but also with a lot of these other characters, there's a weird sort of dissociation of seeing them in what I guess you could think of as the present or even the future, depending on your perspective, but like not in a flashback, in other words. Right. I mean, how many flashbacks have we seen Sun interacting with her father? You know, how many flashbacks have we seen Nadia, not just in Saeed's flashback, but then there's some random cameo in some other character's flashback, you know, doing a, a home inspection with Locke or whatever. And then to see them after the events of the island in real time is like completely surreal. It's so weird. Yeah, it's very surreal. And, and it looks like she was there. There's like a police person there. So like police escort brought her there or yeah. there was something with the, the police having to watch or bring Nadia to the, to the press conference or something that doesn't get explained here. But regardless, they're they're together and all is well with with Said and, uh, and Nadia, right? Yeah. So this press conference, Ben, what stood out to you from the, the story that was told? A couple, I guess, observations. First of all, you know, you can tell very much that most of them are kind of just in autopilot rec reciting this story, you know, that that uh, the different levels of shell shock. And of course, as a viewer this time, you haven't seen the rest of the situation unfold or what happened to them the day they got rescued. But I, I do think it's kind of interesting that no one ever questions, none of the reporters ever questioned the discrepancy that the original news report was saying that literally all 324 bodies were found on the bottom of the ocean. It should have been 316, you know? So, because I guess at the beginning of the season, they were saying, like, we're, we're saying this number, like literally every single body was found. And that was obviously an effort to make it really convincing. No, please don't go look for anybody. They're all dead. But now <laughs> suddenly there's eight that weren't there. So um, it's interesting. Nobody questions that. Yeah, it's weird there's nobody questions that, but I guess they didn't really have a choice to put it anywhere else, their, their landing, because of the the staged wreckage. Yeah, it's it's just, a, I think you just have to sort of close your eyes and look the other way, because otherwise it would be a little bit of a story plot hole. I, I think my biggest thing from all these scenes was um, seeing the, the reunited families, and then also seeing just like weird juxtapositions like... Uh, son's parents next to hurley's parents because they've been so completely separate in their own flashbacks up until now you know it's just a weird juxtaposition one thing to keep in mind with margo is that she's had like a double tragedy in the sense that she lost her husband and then through a conflict that she largely blamed jack for when you think about it i mean you go back all the way back to white rabbit and then at then and then in episodes after that we got filled in the whole blanks of all the blanks of like jack called out Christian for operating under the influence, got him kicked out, you know, got his medical license revoked. And then he went on this huge bender to Australia. And so back in white rabbit, she was, you know, sort of blaming Jack for what was going on. And then not only did he find Christian dead in Australia, and she had to hear about that ostensibly over the phone, 
Then a couple days later, when he leaves to come back with the body, he disappears too. And she spent the last three months thinking that they're both dead. Right. So like that, that's kind of adds extra levels to that character that the rest of the characters are not having to deal with. You know, I mean, all of them felt they lost, thought they lost somebody who then turned out to be alive. Yes. But I think there's a little even more complexity there with Margot, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I, I can agree with that. Uh, now you talk about the reporters not bringing up a lot of these inconsistencies. I assume at one point, maybe not today, you have at one point watched the bonus feature on the season for DVD and Blu-ray, the Oceanic Six, A Conspiracy of Lies. Yes, I have. So I watched all the bonus features yesterday. Okay, wow. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a it's a really awesome set of bonus features on this DVD overall. Probably some of the, the best collection they've had. But this one, it's like a 21, 22 minute short mockumentary, which is like an amateur independent conspiracy theory short about the Oceanic Six and pointing out all these inaccuracies and getting experts testimonies on why the the wreckage doesn't make any sense or these stories don't add up things like that it's it's well worth watching i'm sure it's on youtube somewhere well you mentioned all these and obviously some somebody watching this too also felt the same and put together this this uh conspiracy theory video well and and uh, the i don't know if this is true for the blu-rays that you're watching but the dvds there's actually two discs worth of special features this time instead of just one the reason for that was that because season four was so short, when they promoted the season four DVD sales, they you know were saying, hey, we know that you're getting like a lot shorter season than you're used to getting. It wasn't as expensive as the previous two, three seasons either, but they said, you know, we're going to try to make up for it and give you some more, you know, bonus content. So that's why you get those, those documentaries and stuff. There's more, there's more meat to those special features. Yeah. Um, I think this is uh, Michelle Forbes's only scene in the whole show, right? Like she's just in this one sequence. I believe that is correct. Yes. Yeah, that's that's kind of a shame because uh, I love Michelle Forbes. Um, she uh, I know her all the way back from when she was Ro Laren on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Do you uh, see her in anything besides this? No, I think that's it. Um, yeah, like from Star Trek: Next Generation. I didn't mention the island they they lived on, but they said that they land on the island of Membata. And that's Mm -hmm. important just because uh, the Indonesian translation of Membata means doubt or uncertainty. Ah. Uh, So there's a that's a cute island for them to have chosen. Interesting. Uh, Okay, so there so but there are still some more flashes as we get a look at everyone's individual life after this. And I think one of my favorites here is the the flash forward with what Sun does, because we both love Sun. Mm-hmm. This is her really becoming uh, the woman in charge, so to speak. No more yeah. meek, mild uh, wife or daughter. She is the uh, the uh, what do they call it? The head bitch in charge now, <laughs> uh, because she comes to her father and she tells her that she used her oceanic settlement money to buy a controlling interest in Pike Industries. That he is the part of the reason her husband is dead because they were trying to escape him. She knows that. Her father never liked gin, and now she's basically taking over Pike Industries to make his life a living hell. <laughs> so Sun is um, – she, she, there's no love lost between her and her father uh, after even all this stuff has gone on the island. In, fa- in fact, she's probably more determined now to make his life worse because if, if he hadn't, gin may still be alive. Yeah, I guess you can kind of draw a cause and effect line there of him sending Jin, you know, across the uh, ocean and him ending up uh, dead, which, of course, we by this point, we haven't found out how yet. But yeah, like you said, the beginning of Badass Son <laughs> sounds like you and I are on the same page. We like this turn for this character. Yeah. Only thing that was a little hard for me to swallow, and these are just one of those things, there's been a couple others where you just kind of have to say, oh, for the sake of the plot, we're going to have to go with this. But 
I don't know that she would have been given an oceanic uh, settlement uh, in a dollar amount enough for her to buy a controlling interest in that company. Probably. Like, probably that's a little bit of a stretch to think that she would get enough money from oceanic that she could buy like whatever that would be like a, you know, 51% stake or however she did it in, in her father's company. But I'm willing to just roll with it. Right. For the sake of the plot. So I will play devil's advocate and say it is possible as the daughter of Mr. Pike, she already had some shares in her name before making this purchase. So she uh, enough to get a controlling interest. Just pushed her over the edge. Precisely. Or, But also, too, doesn't it seem strange that Pike Industries would be a publicly traded company? Hey, I don't know. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe they went public while she was gone or something. I don't know. Either way. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm willing to buy it though, Kevin. I like it. I like it. Okay, great. Uh, so let's move on to Hurley who comes home one day with the bag of Mr. Cluck's chicken. Now he's back at the same house we saw him in uh, where with his mother and father. There's nobody around. He And he starts hearing whispers. Not good. Not good when you hear whispers anywhere. <laughs> a coconut even comes by his feet. So this is really getting creepy. It all turns out though to be a surprise birthday party where the theme is a luau. <laughs> And even uh, Said, who's there along with Nadia, as are Kate and Aaron, no Jack or son to be found, mentions that this is a particularly strange theme to have chosen for people who just survived what they did. Yeah. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, two things worth pointing out is there's a DJ here and he has a uh, Geronimo Jackson disc at his uh, at his disposal. And Said is wearing a wedding band. So at some point between landing and this birthday party, Said and uh, Nadia have gotten married. We know they were married at some point, uh, mentioning that Nadia was his wife. And anyway, now we see she has died. But at this point, they're happily married to one another. But the big thing here is that his dad gives him a gift. And it is the Camaro that they had been working on in their previous flashback. It is finished. He has refurbished it. He has put it all together. He did it as sort of a memorial to Hurley, but now that he is back and alive, it is his, and he wants to go take it for a test spin for Hurley. But it, it nothing can ever be easy for Hurley because as he sits down, he looks at the odometer and the tripometer on the car, and it reads out our numbers, 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42. Hurley at first thinks this is some cruel joke. He, of course, has no interest in driving it and just begins to run away from the house. I'm not sure what the end game is or where he end up, but he just runs away from the house because numbers, ah, got to get out of here. <laughs> I kind of, I do feel like though, despite the, the, you know, weird fate thing of the numbers that Hurley's dad kind of officially becomes not an asshole in this episode. Like I know, I think he showed some good sides earlier. Like I think he was genuinely trying to get him to get over his superstition, but he was still primarily after the money. But the fact that he still like uh, does a sweet gesture like that, even after getting the money, like shows that he was he's not an asshole. I feel like the Camaro thing up until the point where the numbers were on the odometer was a pretty cool move for a dad, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I can believe he was a changed man after everything that went sure, on. Sure, absolutely. Especially because, you know, him and Hurley's mother are still together. So you can believe that he really wasn't just there for the money. I think we, we're seeing a brand new side of uh, Cheech Marin here in, <laughs> now that he's back. But then our final flash, we get a, a proper funeral for Christian Shepherd. Jack's giving the eulogy, and we have Kate, Aaron, Saeed, Nadia, and Hurley are all in attendance again. Son is in Korea. He gives an official goodbye, and I love you, and I miss you to his father. Everyone but Kate and Aaron have filed out, and this other woman who is an Australian woman, this is uh, Carol Littleton. She was last seen, I guess, in a, in a coma after the car crash. Yep. 
She apologizes to Jack because she believes she was the reason Christian was in Australia because he came to see uh, their daughter and that uh, the, her daughter actually happened to also be on 815, uh, that daughter being Claire. And of course, Carol's giving this very tearful speech about, you know, you guys may have only just been a few rows apart and never knew that you were siblings. Of course, we know that Jack is fully aware who Claire is and they had a whole relationship and everything. Right. Yeah. And Matthew Fox does his like uh, Jack can't believe this reaction shot, which is when he like lowers his head and puts his hand up on his forehead and starts blinking furiously. Yep. Like that's the signal for Jack can't believe this is happening. That's right. what we're getting. And then, of course, the the, the cute little uh, irony they throw out here is as she's leaving, she tells Kate her son is beautiful as she leaves the church, not knowing that is actually her granddaughter. Right, right. Now, I have a question about this. So I, I've wondered about this for a long time. I want to hear your opinion. Do you think that Kate heard what Claire's mother said to Jack? Because I can never really tell by her reaction. Like, she gives this concerned look to Jack. But also at the same time, they're showing a reaction shot from Jack and he just looks like really traumatized and shook and shaken up, like obvious reasons. But like, so I, is she just reacting to the fact that he looks shaken up or is she reacting to the fact that like she heard what, what he's, what, what the mother said about yeah, Claire? I, I don't have a thought on that either because I, I originally thought, no, she didn't hear it because she was too preoccupied with Aaron. Yeah. But then after she says that and leaves, the way that Kate is tending to Jack makes it seem like she knew exactly what was said. I mean, and ultimately it doesn't matter because obviously he shares it later because this, of course, as you were talking about with like payoffs and stuff, this answers a question that we had from just the last episode, which is, you know, when Jack was talking about you're not even related to him, to Kate, the answer was yes. In fact, he does know that he is related by blood to Aaron by that, by the point of, the, the flash forward and something nice back home. So it answers that question, but ultimately, obviously he shared that with Kate, with Kate, whether it was at that moment or later. Right. I was just curious if you, if you had an opinion, cause I could not tell from the reaction that Evangeline Lilly did, you know, whether she was just, if it was just expressing concern for Jack, just cause he looked messed up or because she specifically heard what, what Carol Littleton had said, but uh, yeah. No, I, the fact that we're both confused means uh, not the greatest scene in the world. <laughs> I mean, it's it's an important scene, and it's and it's one where uh, I think that, that that was something people had been waiting for for a long time, for Jack to learn that he was related to Claire, because now we have to see how that's going to pay off. You know, I mean, and Claire's character is in such a weird state of flux right now, but they've got to they've got to have that pay off in some way. Mm -hmm. Right. That's all the flashes here. I think, of course, the major takeaway is from the press conference. We get we get the the corroborated story between all of them, but it is nice to see all these people back on land and sort of establishing where where they all stand uh, yeah. immediately after landing back. Uh, yeah, we covered a lot of ground in the first hour with that. Just in in like uh, you know tying up this story that this big lie that we've heard alluded to for the whole season. And we go back to like. Uh, Eggtown and and uh, them kind of uh, talking little bits and pieces about it there when they, he, they were testifying and everything. And we get this whole thing laid out for us now. We understand like what the world thinks happened to them versus and, – and then we're about to learn what actually has – what actually does happen to them. Exactly. But before we get into part two, we're going to save some of the superlatives for the end, but there are some we're going to cover hour by hour just for the sake of ease. All right. There was a lot of numbers in this part one here. Um <laughs> So naturally, we have Hurley's odometer and tripometer, but they also mentioned the Oceanic Six were rescued after 108 days, so our elusive seventh number is presented there. 
yep. on the islands uh, when they get the box of with like the mirror and everything that Ben is signaling up. There's also a box of crackers that Hurley chows down on. And Ben says, you know, those crackers are 15 years old, right? <laughs> so that's also something else I noticed is that how did the heck does Ben know that they're 15 years old? I guess that must put a timeline on the last time that this need to be used. Yeah, I guess that would have meant that uh, 1989 would have been the last time that he had used it. Right. Which was before pre-purge. Pre-purge. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, because yeah. that was 1992. I can't remember if I mentioned this in another episode before. I think I did, but either way, the tail of the helicopter is N842M. So eight and four. Yeah. In there. The plane that the Oceanic Six arrive on has the numbers 1717 on the side. You can do a bunch of addition to get 8, 15, and 16 with those. And then Hurley's birthday party. Now, was it the end of season one that had Hurley running through the airport and we got a bunch of numbers on soccer jerseys and things like that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you get a similar thing here with his birthday party and all credit to Lost PD for pointing this all out because I sure as heck, I, I did notice that there were two jerseys with them. Um, I noticed the jerseys. Those right. are the obvious. Yeah. So there's four palm trees on the lanai. There's eight helium balloons tied up by the pool. There's 15 presents on the lanai table. 16 party hats worn by background characters. And then the numbers on the jerseys are 23 and 42. So. Okay, some of that stuff is deliberate. <laughs> I refuse to believe that it, it's, they deliberately made sure that they kept exactly 16 people with party hats within frame during the party. Some of that is Lostpedia psychos. <laughs> I, I love Lostpedia and God bless the fine men and women who have spent all their time putting that information together. I mean, don't get me wrong, but sometimes I read some of these numbers things and I'm just like, mm, that's gotta be, that's kind of a stretch. Okay. Uh, so I agree. And in fact, there's some that I read after the fact that I didn't even bother writing down for that. Okay. <laughs> but because this is specifically a Hurley scene, I can buy it. You're not entirely wrong. You're not entirely wrong. I mean, if there's anybody who should have so, you know lots of numbers surrounding him, it would be Hurley. That's fair. There were a few Sawyer nicknames called Miles Genghis. Mm -hmm. Genghis Khan reference. He called Lapidus a shaggy. I assume for his hair less than the Scooby-Doo character. Uh, and, and he calls him, I don't know if he calls him a Yahoo or Yahoo like capital Y, if that's a nickname that that's specific or not. Yeah, I don't know if that's a Yahoo or just kind of a name. But yeah, I, th I think Yahoo's from something technically. And, th and then the last thing I have is Sawyer refers to the barracks as New Otherton, which you did an episode or two before, and I had never heard that before. I, but you had mentioned this is something that I guess the crew had referred to New Otherton as sort of a nickname, but now it is established in Lost Lore as a, a Sawyer nickname here. Exactly uh, right. Yes, it was something that was a, a, a nickname on the set that, that then finally got canonized in this episode. Uh, and it's not a nickname, but something I really love that is Sawyer related that is a trademark quote of his is when they realize, or Sawyer tells Jack that Hurley is with Locke and Ben at the Orchid. Jack gives out a hearty, son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. Sawyer's own catchphrase for this, and I love that. Every now and then, somebody will adopt somebody else's catchphrase, and I, I always enjoy when that happens. Yeah, me too. Can you cover us on books or music for this first hour? Yeah, um, so we have, this is uh, a, a situation kind of like last season, actually, even though the season four soundtrack was only one disc, the back half of the disc basically is all from this three-parter. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of tracks. Uh, so like I did last season with that season finale, I'm just going to give a couple of highlights uh, per 
per part. There is a theme, There's it's called There's No Place Like Home, so it's named after the episode. It is considered to be sort of the theme of the Oceanic Six, because it really gets sort of coined here, and then it gets used more extensively than that throughout the rest of the series. It almost kind of comes a becomes a de facto theme for like the emotional moments of the second half of the series, which sort of takes place of life and death. I tend to prefer it, but maybe that's because I feel like the life and death theme is just so overhyped and overused. It's a beautiful theme. Both of them are fantastic themes, but life and death gets used so much that I, I prefer personally this Oceanic Six theme that comes out in the track called There's No Place Like Home. That's a, a good one. Another really strong track is called uh, Nadia on Your Life. Just just got to give it up for the Giacchino <laughs> puns. I mean, so many of these are puns. I'm even going to give the titles of the ones I'm not talking about. The other two are Of Mice and Ben and Sea Fortitude. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> so, and those are kind of more your, your standard uh, suspense tracks. Nadia on Your Life is a nice, uh, it starts with the Saeed's theme and piano just a nice subtle version of his theme and then transitions into the sort of adventure theme of lost when everybody arrives at the freighter so that's another one of my favorite tracks as far as books goes there's nothing specific other than the actual title of the episode which of course is a reference to the wizard of oz and that comes on the heels, no pun intended there, of a lot of uh, other references to Wizard of Oz that we've had in Lost, including the fact that Henry Gale, Ben's initial alias, was a character from Wizard of Oz. And then, of course, we had another episode called The Man Behind the Curtain. Uh, so it sort of joins, much like Alice in Wonderland, a, a literary work that has multiple references uh, in Lost. So that's what we've got for music and books. All right, so do you want to take us to our online island stuff for part two? I would love to. So for part two, our on-island action, we have Sawyer and Jack catching up with Hurley, and then they go into the orchid, or they go on to the orchid site where Locke is there already. Ben has surrendered himself, so Locke's there by himself uh, trying to find the entrance to the underground section. And he tries to unsuccessfully, <laughs> unsuccessfully tries to convince Jack not to leave the island. This is something where I want to talk about in more detail later, Kevin, but because obviously this is a big conversation and kind of runs some direct parallels to the most pivotal conversation from season one. Our action on the freighter this episode is they find this C4. Desmond ha explains to Michael and Jin that the C4 is rigged to blow by a radio signal. Of course, they're not really sure where the radio signal is coming from or what, what triggers it, but the audience has probably already guessed that at this point. And then Michael goes to get some liquid nitrogen, and they're going to try to freeze it or slow the reaction if the bomb is triggered by spraying this liquid nitrogen on it because the thing is so expertly rigged up that they can't figure out a way to defuse it. Now, on the island, Kimi, who captured Ben, bringing him back to the chopper, uh, where Frank is still handcuffed, Kate and Saeed kind of emerge. Well, I guess Kate emerges by herself, uh, and it's part of this setup where the others uh, stage a rescue for Ben. So they have this big epic fight. And Kevin, I want to talk about this too, because this is like probably the most epic battle in the history of Lost at this point. Um, <laughs> but essentially what happens is uh, all the mercs except for Kimi get killed. And then there's a one-on-one -on -one fight with, with Kimi and Saeed. And Saeed even almost gets killed before Richard shoots him a couple times in the back, uh, shoots Kimi a couple times. 
Uh, and then in exchange for freeing Ben, the others agree to let Kate and Saeed take the chopper and leave the island. So we've got everybody except for Sun of the Oceanic Six is sort of all in the same place, uh, lifting off uh, from the island on the helicopter to head for the freighter. Then Daniel on the island, or on the sort of on the beach camp side of the island, is helping to ferry people to the freighter. And he's telling Miles and Charlotte that they need to make sure that they're on the next trip. But Miles and Charlotte both decide to stay on the island for their own different reasons. Juliet also says she's going to stay just because she feels obligated to stay until she makes sure that everybody else has a chance to get off because she's nice like that. Um, (laughs) And then uh, back in the Orchid, as Locke and Jack are talking, Ben shows up after the rescue from earlier. Let's... you know, Jack go without any issues or anything. And he and uh, Locke go down underground uh, into the lower part of the Orchid station. And this is where we get some big time information about the Orchid. To basically put it as bluntly as possible, the Orchid is meant for time travel experiments, which is like a huge, like, (laughs) this is a big leap for Lost, uh, even though we've seen some time travel episodes. But, you know, I guess there's kind of been the, the, the indicators that this was kind of where the series was headed, you know? Right. So now we're learning, like, for sure confirmation that, yes, there were time travel experiments going on on the island. Locke watches this video, which I also want to talk about, and, um, you know, another one of the orientation videos. But then Kimi shows up, so apparently he was not killed, uh, which I kind of could tell from the fight scene because he just got hit in his Kevlar uh, vest. But he faked dead long enough that they stopped bother- worrying about him, I guess. But he comes down here, and there's another big showdown sequence. And Ben kills Kimi, which, of course, triggers the dead man's trigger that he was wearing and arms the C4 on the ship. And then on the way back in a helicopter, Frank realizes that the fuel tank took a bullet and is leaking. And in order to lessen the weight, Sawyer throws himself off of the helicopter after kissing Kate and whispering a request in her ear that we do not get to hear. And then the helicopter is still heading towards the freighter that, of course, we know has a bomb on it that is about to go off, wrapping up the first half of this two-parter, or I guess second half of the three-parter, I should say. Mm. So that's our on-island stuff. Lots of stuff to talk about here. Where do we want to start? Okay. I'm talking about this orientation video. Okay, let's start with that, sure. We know that, uh, as we've had before, we've got the same person now, this uh, middle-aged Asian man with a scientist jacket on, and uh, he introduces himself as something different each time. This time, it is Edgar Hallowax. So we've had Marvin Candle, Mark Wickman, and Edgar Hallowax, all Candle-related, I guess, aliases, you could say. And then also Hallowax should ring a bell because that is the name that was on the jacket that we saw Ben wearing in his flash forward episode just a few episodes ago. So we're starting to get a little closer to understanding that. Things that we can glean from this orientation video, and Kevin, tell me if you think I'm missing anything significant, was basically that the Orchid Station was built deliberately next to a pocket of negatively charged exotic matter, was how he put it. And that they were basically doing time travel experiments. They said something like, we're going to 
attempt to send the animal a few seconds forward in fourth dimensional space, which means time. And the animal they're talking about is, of course, one of those uh, cute and cuddly little bunnies with numbers stamped on them, um, as this kind of became an iconic uh, a, a visual of loss, the bunnies with, na- with uh, numbers on them. And those were the kind of the big reveals, I guess. So there was this chamber. And then, of course, you're not supposed to put anything metal in the chamber, nothing inorganic, which sounds a little bit like the time travel thing from The Terminator where they, they have to wrap the Terminator in flesh in order for him to be able to travel to, through time because metal won't travel through it and stuff like that. But I thought that was kind of interesting. I know these guys that write these episodes are all like fans of all the same old school uh, sci-fi that we are. So so those are, those are the big things I got out of this. Just, do you feel like this helps you get a better video, uh, idea of sort of what this particular branch of the Dharma Initiative was doing and like why it's on the island or or what? Yeah, no, I think it it definitely lines up with their uh, obsession with electromagnetism uh, from the swan and now here. But I mean, the thing I loved most about this was as Locke's watching this and Wickman is saying, make sure you put no metal objects in here. Here Ben is collecting as much metal as he possibly can and throwing it in there as Locke's just looking at him trying to like raise a finger or say something about it, uh, but also wanting to pay attention to the tape. Good stuff. It's hilarious. I love how they pull these moments of humor out of these really serious situations and stuff. But like watching Locke just have this befuddled look on his face while the video specifically telling him, do not under any circumstances put anything metal in while Ben's just like throwing metal garbage cans and chairs and stuff, just like stacking them up in there. Uh, It's just really funny. Yeah. And so what struck me, I guess, was where it says that, you know, this island has properties unlike anywhere else on this earth, which of course we already know. We know, we remember from back with things like, you know, Alvar Hanso and the Hanso Foundation and the original videos that we watched, and even from the lost experience, that part of their reason for being on this island was because there were properties unlike anywhere else on Earth. Like we already know, even from a pseudo scientific perspective, that the island is special, like capital S special. I think this just reinforces forces that like here's a place where there was some some like energy underground that they deliberately built the uh, orchid station there to try to tap into it kind of makes me think about how like at least the impression I get was that with the swan station with the 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 button you have to push every 108 minutes to release the electromagnetic energy was kind of like they built that station next to it and it was either because it was next to that energy and they didn't intend to tap into it the way they did or they didn't even know it was there and they had to figure out a way to contain it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's like you've got the same basic thing going on. It's like there's stuff going on on this island like energy-wise that's completely unique and these kooky 70s scientists did not know what the hell they were doing and were screwing shit up. And so this you got this other example of it right here with this uh, supposed time travel experiment chamber. So I thought that was really cool. It tied into me a lot with like the Swan Station and what we already know about sort of what the Dharma Initiative was up to. My last question, Kevin, do you think there was some significance to the fact that the the videotape started automatically rewinding and Locke couldn't figure out why and he couldn't stop it? Or was that just meant to be funny, like kind of add to the humor of the situation of him trying to watch the video? Well, it could really be one or the other. Mm -hmm. I think I think it's sort of a symptom of both. You know, it's not like in the previous orientation videos where a a critical film strip was missing 
this just feels like it happened to be to to self rewind at a at a time that to me anyways listening to it didn't seem to be of critical importance all the stuff that he needed to know he had already seen if that makes sense uh, yeah it would have been different i guess in the, if it was like no whatever you do in this chamber don't <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i didn't do that it's great to get another Dharma orientation video. It's been a long time since we've had one. I think the last new one we got was, I guess if you could count it, you could say the one that uh, Ben was watching in the flashback in The Man Behind the Curtain, like the the welcome to the island for new recruits when he was a little kid. Yeah. Uh, kind of neat to get that and and get some, some nice clues and some meat in there. Um, what about uh, this, uh, the big Jack and Locke talk? Can we talk about this for a minute? We can, yeah. And like you said, I got a lot of flashbacks to Man of Science, Man of Faith watching this. Mm -hmm. Sure. Obviously intentional. There's some things, I mean, even though we've still got two seasons of this show left to go, I feel like a lot of these, this three-part finale sort of felt very bookendy with the with the first season because you've got the imagery of people coming back from being stranded on an island versus people crashing on an island. You've got, you know, family reunions instead of people getting separated from their families. And then you've got this scene, and I'm sure there's other parallels that, that I was, that I haven't thought of right now, but this scene is clearly meant to be a follow-up to the pivotal scene in the season finale of season one, where Jack and Locke sort of lay out their philosophical dif differences that then serve to, basically be the foundation of the, the the conversation that Lost has with its audience about faith and about, you know, reason and that sort of thing. The quickly recap of this is that Locke indicates that he's, I guess, first I, first thing that, I, that jumped out to me is that Locke indicates that he's willing to forgive Jack for trying to murder him. I mean, to me, that's big. And it, it glosses over so fast because it's such a quick conversation. Right. But we spent a good amount of time of that early in the, the season talking about how Jack put a gun to Locke's head, believing it to be loaded with bullets and pulled the trigger for all intents and purposes, you know, tried to murder John. And Locke's just willing to let that go because he just feels like there's something much bigger and more important that they need to talk about, which is namely that Jack is not supposed to leave the island. And Jack even remembers their previous conversation. He brings this up and he says, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, this is all about, he says, it's my destiny, right? You know, that sort of thing. And I think that, you know, just like before when Locke said that Jack doesn't believe in destiny or say he said Jack does believe in destiny. He just doesn't know it yet. Mm -hmm. he, he again sort of asserts that Jack, he says, Jack, you know that you're here for a reason. Like he's kind of trying to tap into this lower level thing of like, Jack, come on, if you just cast aside your skepticism in your heart of hearts, you know that you're supposed to be here for a reason. And of course, Jack is not in a place right now where that's going to, uh, that's going to work for him, but he gets there. <laughs> yeah, he gets there. It, it takes a while. I, I do. You're right. It is funny to think that, that Locke's forgiven him because he, when they first see each other, Locke just gives him the old hello, Jack. Like yeah. nothing, nothing ever happened. That was so nine days ago, the whole trying to kill him. So thing. nine days ago that, yeah, that strikes very much the John Locke of the sort of the at peace jungle man, uh, mysterious monk of the jungle type John Locke. That's just very at peace with himself. It's just like, Oh, I can let that go. Let's just talk about what's important here, which is you need to stay on this island. Yeah. I mean, and and uh, he correctly predicts that if that if Jack leaves before he fulfills that destiny, that it's going to eat him alive. 
until he is going to want to come back. I mean, you could not get a more spot on prediction. And because we already know, you know, we've seen the future. We know that's exactly what's going to happen. Yep. Another big thing we find out this conversation, Kevin, is that Locke is the originator of the idea that they have to lie. Like that to me was a big reveal. Me too. Yeah, I agree with you. He's the one that comes up with this idea. Now for him, it's a little different. I think he's basically trying to protect the island. He's like, you cannot tell people you were on this island where these crazy things happen. For Jack, when it gets towards the end of part three, which we'll get there, of course, but I think it's more about protecting the people that they left behind. But it is essentially it's Locke's idea that they have to come up with a cover story. Uh, You know, like when it becomes clear in that conversation that he's not going to be able to convince Jack to stay, the next best thing he says is, okay, well, then you've got to lie about where you've been because, you know, he, he has seen from like learning about Widmore from Ben and stuff that people out there want to exploit the island which in a sense was what the Dharma Initiative was also trying to do. They may have had altruistic motives, but it was kind of along the same lines. So yeah, he's got this idea that they're going to have to lie. Jack says that the island does not need protecting because it's just an island. And we need to put a pin in that. Just remember that Jack is the one that says that the island does not need protecting. (laughs) Um, And Locke says it's not an island. It's a place where miracles happen. Once again, Jack says, I don't believe in miracles. So very, again, very mirror-like to that season one conversation where he says he doesn't believe in destiny. He denies a belief as a way of ending the conversation. I I love that scene because it's so parallel to that first season. It sort of creates that symmetry between this and and season one. So to me, almost as important as that season one conversation. Did you have anything you wanted to add on to that one? No, not to the conversation itself. I just think you're right. It is definitely an important thing to note that it was Locke's idea for Jack to lie. Yeah. A couple other little things here and there. I was a little bit annoyed by some of the Miles and Charlotte and Daniel stuff. Miles, it's like his abilities kind of became nebulous again because he says he makes some comment to Charlotte about all the time she spent to get here. And like he's able to read her mind or something, but that's not supposed to be his ability. Did I misread that or? I don't think so. And the reason I say that is because there's a deleted scene amongst the deleted scenes where I forget who he's with at the time, but they encounter the uh, the fence, you know, the smoke monster stay out of the 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 barrack. Yeah. Okay. And they're like, oh, we can't tell if it's on or off. And he intuits that it's off and just walks right through it. Oh. Communicating with the dead either. Right. To me, I read that as maybe, I don't think it's cut for time, but this puts a whole new perspective on his abilities. And yeah. I don't know what you or the viewers have lost. Did, did you, did, was it read that deleted scenes were canonical or they were deleted? It depends on the person. It of really course. depends on the person. I, I've always, at any show, I've always approached deleted scenes as, they're canon until something from a future episode contradiction contradicts them, and then they're no longer canon. To okay. me, that seems like the the easiest way to do it. Okay, so then maybe you could say that we have seen in this deleted scene that he can intuit things that aren't just okay with the dead. Okay, such as knowing doing this thing about Charlotte. Yeah, right. Yeah, and then Charlotte kind of tells Daniel in this really sort of cheeky way, like, "No, I'm going to stay on the island." Would it be sound weird to you if I told you I was looking for where I was born? And it's like, just tell him, I think I was born here on the island. I've spent a lot of my life trying to get back here, so I'm not going to leave. I don't know. It just seemed a little cheekier than it needed to be. So, But it's it's good because I guess we're, we're putting these – I guess this is as good a time as any to talk about these freighter characters, or at least these three in particular, 
because we're not going to get a whole lot more with them in the finale here. It's good that they're placing these characters in such a way that we know that we're going to get more of them, you know, because that was probably, you know, a disappointment of season four, partly probably having to do with the fact that we lost two hours, but that we, you know, we didn't get a little more time with these new characters because I am interested in really all four of them. I like all four of them. Right. And that's, I think this is the first time that they batted a thousand with introducing new characters, you know? Yeah, I agree with you. I like all four of these. And I think it might be there's another special feature specifically on the freighter folk on the DVD where okay. where someone mentions that they they intended to do a lot more with them or mm-hmm. reveal a lot more of their backstories in season five. Yeah. And of course the deliberate choices of the of they they needed to pick specific motivations and occupations of these characters that would benefit the island, but also give them a reason for wanting to go there. Right. But right. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, uh, it, it's good to know that we're going to get more with these characters. They're already being sort of positioned for that. And it is one of the things that we lost out on with this season. Like I say, I think I'm just, I'm just, I'm just happy that they gave us four characters that are all really enjoyable characters, uh, as opposed to giving us another Nikki and Paolo. So <laughs> <laughs> that's all I've got for the present stuff. Well, there's one more thing I wanted to talk about, and that's what Claire whispered to Kate on the plane before jump or the helicopter. Oh, yes. So this is something that I read. Obviously, we couldn't hear it, but I assume either a lot of people turned up the volume on their televisions to hear it was said. But it also made it sound like on one of the recap episodes uh, that aired after this, maybe before the start of season five, that they clarified basically exactly what was said. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a YouTube video out there somewhere that shows uh, like a, a subtitle of what he said and somebody used like insanely enhanced uh, audio to pick it up. So it is actually, he does actually say a legible line that gives insight into what we'll learn later. But uh, it, I think the average person's television is not going to be able to pick it up. Uh, so the line, I have a daughter in Alabama, you need to find her, tell her I'm sorry. But her daughter lives – his daughter lives in Albuquerque, as we know. So it's mm. more likely to have said, I have a daughter in Albuquerque. You need to find her. Tell her I am sorry. And when I heard this or read this, I immediately thought back to the episode where Jack gets mad about her talking to Sawyer and what he wants her to do that that, that right. has nothing to do with this. Right. I guess for people with really good audio equipment, that was a question that was answered now. And then for people without really good audio equipment, it's a question that will get answered next season. <laughs> Because because you're right. The answer is there. I think it's just most people didn't pick up on it the first time around. Right. Okay, so we can talk about the flashes then, I suppose. There's only two in this episode. Okay. The previously on for this episode is all from There's No Place Like Home Part 1, with the exception of the last scene of the season finale of Season 3, where Jack meets Kate, says he went to the funeral alone, wishes Kate was there, and then, of course, we have to go back. The, cl- the most famous line of all time. Most famous line of all time. Now, we, if you're just watching the season three finale, just assume Kate drives off. But that is not what happens. And the first flash picks up directly from where we leave off in season three. Because Kate hears Jack yelling, we have to go back. And she doesn't drive off, but instead backs up. And her her mood changes. You know, she's being kind with Jack at first, and she cries. And now she's pissed. <laughs> now she's not happy with Jack. She she basically yells at him for a one to go back to the island, b for calling her for two days straight while he's you know drunk and totally messed up on pills, and for showing her the obituary for Jeremy Bentham. So we get a name attached to this obituary that uh, Jack was crying over. 
but who cares? Jeremy Bentham, we don't know who that is. Right. Yeah. Well, we know it's somebody that matters. It just doesn't. Right. We don't know who yet. Yes. Uh, and, and she explains to Jack that Jerry Bentham met with her and she knew from the first moment she saw Jeremy, he was crazy and can't believe Jack would trust him. But Jack says he listened to Jeremy because he was told it was the only way to save her and Aaron. And Kate immediately slaps Jack saying, don't ever say his name again, him being Aaron. Jack, he, he tries to stammer an apology out, but Kate says, I spent the last three years trying to get all the horrible things that happened on the day that we left and that she's not going back, and that's when she gets in the car and speeds away. So not only did she not drive away after Jack said we have to go back, she firmly said she's not to stay away from Aaron, get the name of Jeremy Bentham, and it puts a timestamp on this as this is would be January of 2008 because of 108 days after the uh, after the plane crash, we'll put him in early January 2005. Okay, all right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It happened. They still have not been back to the island. So this, mm-hmm. this whole, I think there's a lot of this where you're seeing Aaron's a little bit older, so you know some time has passed. But exactly how much time has passed from them leaving the island and all these characters' lives evolving and getting to this point, I think getting that timetable is is of importance as well. Right. You know, and then we know from the Ben flash forward that he came back in 2005. So. We have these folks are about to get rescued. And then a year later, Ben comes back. And then three years after that, or I guess, yeah, about two and a half years after that is when we see everything unfolding here. And this is the thing, uh, you know, from, from this point forward, I think it was a great pickup where the last season left off because I like when they take a scene that you think is over and then turn it on its head like that. But it also sort of signals that everything in the flash forwards from this point is linear and moving forward from this moment. You know, no more jumping around to like, oh, here's before Hurley went into the mental institution. So I did not watch this because it was pretty long, but uh, there is a season four bonus feature that puts all of the the clips together, all the flash forwards together. So you could watch them in chronological. Does it really? Wow. Wow. So that's pretty fun. That sounds more like a fan project. That's great that they would put that on a DVD. I do think it's interactive that you you put them together in order yourself and then okay. it them in order. Huh. But yeah, if you got an extra 50 minutes or so. Cool. This together. So that, so that is actually pretty cool. So this is where we get to see Walt. Now, Malcolm David Kelly, a lot of times his character is altered or whatever to try to match his age. But this is Malcolm David Kelly, as is grown up as Walt's. Uh, visiting Hurley in the Santa Rosa Mental Institution. And they have a conversation where Walt tells Hurley that nobody came to visit him, and Hurley apologizes for that. But Jeremy Bentham came to visit him, and he doesn't understand why everybody is lying about what happened. And Hurley says it's the only way to protect everybody who didn't come back from the island. Walt says, like my dad, and Hurley says yes. So I, I read that as one of the other lies they're perpetrating is that Michael is still alive. To Walt, at least. Yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, to the rest of the world, Michael's dead on September 22nd, 2004. Walt, I guess, knew that his father went back and is still under the impression that he's on the island or something. He knows that the sunlight was told because they didn't die on that. Right. Walt and him were on the plane. So maybe Jeremy Bentham gave him an update on on his father or something like that. But okay. Yeah. To me, it's important to note that Jeremy Bentham not only visited Jack and Kate, but Walt as well. Right. Yeah. And this all this Jeremy Bentham stuff is really building. So that becomes sort of really quickly the focus of what you want to learn in this episode. We have said before that 
you know, one of the big mysteries going into season four was who's in the coffin that gets established in the season three finale. But I, at the time, I feel like I had bigger things on my mind, like what's up with the freighter, but this is quickly becoming the, the must know answer. And so like, when I remember watching this, I was like, by God, they better show us who's in that coffin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And that's it. Those are the only two flashes from this. Is there anything else you want to say about the flashes before we get to superlatives? Just that I think it was it was really great for them to bring Walt back. I mean, one 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 real surefire way to get lost fans foaming at the mouth is for Walt to come back after season two because everybody there were so many people who were like, well, Walt's storyline's unfinished. You know, they said he was special. How's he special? You know, all that stuff. And I'll admit that there was probably if they had done the time different on the island, like if they had made it so that the boy could actually age on the island they probably would have done something different with the character, but I also was not nearly as like, I guess just like Velcro clung to the whole Walt is special thing as other, as other fans were, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, like that seemed to be something that some people could not let go of and even saw ultimately saw it as like a failure or for them, it was like something that made the series unsuccessful that they never explained Walt to the satisfaction of that particular viewer. Not that they didn't explain Walt, but you know, like, because to me, it's just like, what you need to know now is there are special people on the island. Walt's far from the only one at this point. We've seen Walt do things like appear where he's not supposed to be, that sort of thing. But we have a guy that talks to dead people. We have two guys that talk to dead people, Mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, like, to me, that's part of a bigger narrative of like, what kind of people come to the island, what the island does to people, that sort of thing. But there were a lot of people that really couldn't let go of the Walt thing. And so to have an appearance of him here was was kind of nice. I like that they were able to bring him back for just a little bit. And honestly, for some fans, I mean, me included, it's easy to forget about him. Yeah. It's an out of sight, out of mind thing. But also there's just so much else going on the island that you're preoccupied with. God, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Oh, I remember one thing that we didn't get a chance to talk about from the present before we keep, before we move on from this episode, if that's okay. Sure. Was the holy shit the fight scene? Yeah, the yeah battle. Yeah, okay. Oh my god! Like that is like probably the most insane fight, and like not just like battle fight sequence, guns, firearms, explosions—you name it—in like the entire history of the show. Am I wrong? I can't think of anything that tops that from an action perspective. No, it's pretty awesome. It does. It does get a little choppy in the editing of the Saeed and Kimi one-on-one battle. Yeah, yeah. Before that, it's it's pretty dang awesome. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a brutal fight. And, and I mean, that was something where like you probably had, if you had to pick one person of the Island survivors to take on Kimi, who would it be? Saeed Jarrah, you know, like, come on. (laughs) So yeah, no, I mean, I just, I felt like I had to give a shout out to that, that scene just because from the minute those like ridiculous, insane automatic weapons that those guys have start going off and there's like you know, little, uh, I forget what they call the little mini explosive they have in the ground to make it look like uh, bullets are flying into the ground and all that stuff. I was just like, holy shit, this is lost on like speed. This is crazy. Loved it. And, uh, and, and it just, it culminates in such a satisfying way too. with just the big knockdown drag out fight with Saeed versus Kimi. I loved it. And then, and then on top of all that, it's like, you find yourself rooting for the others. <laughs> you find yourself rooting for the others. And in the in this battle has a, a lasting effect with, of course, the bullet hole grazing the helicopter and the fuel thing, which yeah, leads to true. so many other problems and and uh, changes the course of how things go down. 
You and your, you're like, yes, this is a very important scene from a narrative perspective. And I'm like, oh, those guns were really cool. <laughs> I mean, it can be both, right? You can have both. You can. <laughs> so superlatives. Only two numbers in this that I found anyways. All right. You said Kimi was shot a couple of times. Well, Ben, he was shot four times in the back. Natch. Naturally. And then the only one that's pretty obvious is in the uh, the orientation orchid video. The rabbit that Hallowix has has the number 15 on it. Those okay. are the two I had. Yeah. What are you? Uh, no, those, that's all I had too. I, well, I didn't even get the bullet thing. Uh, I, I just had the 15 on the, the rabbit and that's definitely, it's also not the last first or last rabbit that'll have an, a number on it. Um, I think all the way back in season three, didn't the rabbit have an eight on it? The, the yeah. hippity hop, hippity hop one. Bunny number eight. Yep. Two Sawyer nicknames before he jumps into the ocean. We got Sundance for Jack, you know, Butch Cassie and the Sundance kid. Yeah. And then, uh, Kenny Rogers for Lapidus. So Sawyer seems to be pulling out Lapidus's appearance for his nickname. I, I love the Kenny Rogers reference. That's hilarious. It, it's very apropos for Just sure. Just really apropos. <laughs> oh, I do have, I wanted to add a milesism. I mean, this could easily be just like a quote of the episode too, but I know we were trying to, we we're saying, you know, Miles is the new Sawyer. So his sarcastic response when uh, Rose asks him if he could eat the peanuts mm-hmm. and he just goes, mate, may I eat these peanuts? <laughs> so then she goes, I'm going to keep my eye on you, shorty. That was, that was a little fun Rose Miles interaction. Classic. Like, who do you think you are? Again? Yeah. Because that was something you had mentioned a couple uh, episodes ago, how you thought it was interesting that Charlotte and Daniel were just helping themselves to food like anybody else. Yeah. They're just going for the Dharma kitchen, man. It's a, it's an open community. All right. So let's see for music. Got a few more tracks from this particular hour block. I think I liked uh, all three of these, actually. The first one is called, okay, we're ready for our puns again. Key me away from him. Brilliant. That's maybe uh-huh. one of my favorites. <laughs> this is the big battle scene, uh, mercenaries versus others, culminating with Kimi versus Saeed. This is probably the most action-heavy five minutes of the entire series. <laughs> so Giacchino, like, really lays it on. Uh, this is not a track you would listen to to relax, but I really enjoyed it. A couple other good tracks. Time Crunch and Can't Kill Kimi are both kind of dramatic. Some suspense in there. And then Can't Kill Kimi ends with the Oceanic 6 theme. Actually, sorry, starts with that because... It's uh, when they get on the helicopter and then it ends with Kimi showing up at the bottom of the orchid, which so then the music turns kind of scary at that point. So three more tracks for this episode and no book references. Okay, then. So do we want to move on to the finale of season four, part three? Let's do it. There's no place like home part three. This is the third time you click your heels. That's what's supposed to bring you home, right? And the uh, present island time stuff just picks off pretty much picks up pretty much right where the last stuff left off. So Kimi, we saw die, you know, at the end of the last episode. And we know what that means because the dead man's trigger goes off. And on the freighter, the green light turns red, which means this is by the C4. This is where Michael and Jin and Desmond are all trying to keep this thing from blowing up by spraying liquid nitrogen on it. So what that means is that the liquid nitrogen is preventing it from going off. But as soon as it heats up and wears off, the thing's going to explode. And there's really nothing to prevent that at this point. But we've got the helicopter coming in. And so, you know, Desmond is frantically telling them not to land, but they don't really have a choice because they don't have any gas left. There's a hole in the tank. So they land and everybody sort of has like mere seconds to bring each other up to speed on this. I don't even think that the rest of the Oceanic Six, Kevin, they ever even learned that, that Michael's on the freighter, do they? Like this no. is how fast this happens. Nope. 
not, there's not even any time to exchange all this information because they're just trying to rush and refuel this copter as fast as they can so that they can get off of a freighter that's about to blow up. So there's all this confusion. Um, I feel like at multiple points, people keep saying like, go get Jin, go get Jin. And then nobody does. And Jin is down there because he's like staying with Michael, which is I think kind of cool because it shows that there's still some loyalty there after everything that's gone on. Jin and Michael down there, you know, trying to prevent this thing from blowing up. But of course, the consequence of that is that Jin runs out too late. He emerges onto the deck as the helicopter is already taken off as in, in just above the freighter. And so he's like flailing his arms for them to um, stop. Sun sees him and she's screaming for them to go back for him. Uh, but of course, Frank can't do it. They've got seconds to go. And then, of course, we see the freighter explode from a distance from the perspective of the helicopter and Jin, you know, right there on the deck. So he is gone. And Kevin, the reaction from Yunjin Kim, the actress, to this death. Oh my God. Like she puts it on all cylinders here. This is maybe the best reaction to a death in terms of from an acting perspective so far. <sighs> yeah. I mean, well, it, it's appropriate. I mean, because there's some, sometimes there's, you know, there's like the more, uh, I guess, peaceful death. Somebody, you know, dies in somebody's arms in the middle of the jungle, whispering their last goodbyes or whatever. This is like a huge freaking explosion. And she screams her head off like for minutes. It feels like it never ends. She's yeah. screaming and screaming. Even when it comes back from a commercial break, she's still screaming for them to go back and look for them and everything. Like, I don't think it's it's too often where I watch something where an actor like completely 100% convinces me that somebody they love just died right in front of them. But she did that. She's like screaming her lungs out in horror. And it is hard not to have that like literally jar you. She does such a good job with it. So that is the gin death scene. And it's rough. But it, I mean, the thing is, is that we'll have to talk you know more about it when we get to your flash forward or to your flash forward, because his death is now going to inform what's going to happen to Sun's character. And I think that's where it becomes really pivotal for this episode. Oh, yes. Sawyer, who, of course, just threw himself off of the helicopter to save everybody else, uh, culminating the, his journey to become the ultimate hero, emerges on the shore uh, shirtless in front of Juliet, who is drinking rum. And she looks very upset. And he she points out something that I guess he didn't notice because he was swimming the other way. But off on the horizon, there's a giant cloud of black smoke indicating that the freighter has exploded. So Juliet, once again, after over three years now that she has had uh, a couple of times where she thought she was about to get off the island and has not. And that sucks. And as Elizabeth Mitchell put it in the on location, Juliet is too drunk to appreciate a, shir a shirtless Sawyer swimming up to her. Mm. On Hey, you know who's not too who, too drunk to appreciate it? The rest of the audience. <laughs> so let's see, back down in the Orchid Station, we see Ben using these metal objects in the time travel chamber. He's loaded it up, and then he closes the doors and sets off a reaction that basically what it does is it blows a hole in the back of the chamber, uh, revealing that there was like there's this old sort of cave-like passage behind it. And then he tells Locke that he has to be the one to move the island because whoever does it cannot go back. And Jacob wants to punish him. 
this is kind of new information that gets introduced, this idea that Ben thinks he's being punished by Jacob, although we do kind of get this idea, I mean, from previous couple episodes that he understands that his time as a leader is over. So I guess he's trying to do something altruistic because he tells Locke, well, here's, you know, go two miles this way and here's where Richard and the rest of the others are and you're their leader now. So he apologizes for making John's life so miserable and then heads into this uh, cave-like stretch behind the time chamber. I should say he's got his Hallowax parka on at this point because he says he's going somewhere cold. But he follows these tunnels and he enters this freezing cold underground chamber. Uh, He falls and cuts his arm along the way, which is a payoff for another thing from that episode where we saw him, he had a wound on his, uh, his arm. And what he sees, Kevin, is something completely unexpected, uh-huh. which is a giant wheel uh, with spokes coming out of it embedded in the side of a wall covered in ice in this like frozen underground part of the island. This is like crazy. At this point, this is like deep end shit here. And so it is what's sometimes referred to as a donkey wheel, which is the kind of thing where if you want to, I guess they... To get water out of a well, I think, is something they used to use that for. You would attach a donkey to it, and the donkey would just walk around in circles, pulling the wheel as it went, and it would basically just perform the labor of getting water out of the well. He chips away the ice and starts turning it, says, I hope you're happy, Jacob, starts pushing this wheel. So a light and a noise consume the entire island. We see this from multiple perspectives, and this is actually very reminiscent, Kevin, of the season two finale where we have the electromagnetic energy go off in the swan station when desmond turns the failsafe key where all of a sudden in all different parts of the island we see people looking up and there's this bright light and really loud noise and everything but uh you know the people in the helicopter lock with the others you name it everybody's seeing this huge thing and there you see this wide shot of the island with this almost like ball of light expanding from in the center of it really really cool shot And he continues to turn the wheel until everything goes to white and then the island vanishes. It cuts to a shot of a completely blank ocean except for this little sort of ripple effect in the middle of where the island used to be. Now, Kevin, that would make a believer out of me. (laughs) I think (laughs) people's reactions to when the island disappeared, I'm talking about in the show, not not necessarily out of the show, but like uh, it, it spoke volumes. This was incredible scene. I love the scene. I think it was one of those, okay, nothing's off the table now scenes that they could actually move the island. And with the island gone, the chopper has nowhere to land. So Frank is freaking out. He makes a pretty scary crash landing on the water. Uh, everybody manages to survive miraculously and get into this life raft that Saeed threw out. Desmond almost dies. This is kind of, I think, a head fake, uh, another one of these fake outs because we have not seen Desmond in any flash forwards. So I'm sure there are some people thinking that Desmond was about to die right here. But Jack does manage to resuscitate him. And then that night they see a boat coming and Jack tells everyone that they have to lie or the people that that came to the island to kill them will come back again, and it's for the protection of everyone that they left behind. And the boat turns out to belong to one Penelope Widmore. So after all that craziness with the freighter, Kevin, all that time thinking, are they going to get off of the freighter? Are they going to escape, etc.? It has nothing to do with the freighter. It is actually Penny's boat who had been trying to 
find Desmond the whole time who manages to rescue everybody. Kind of a nice turn of events and leads to, of course, a great emotional reunion scene. Right. We're going to rip one couple apart, but don't worry. We're going to put one back together too. <laughs> right. Uh, the roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, so I admit I lost a little bit, the Desmond Penny uh, reunion scene. I think that's probably one of the most satisfying reunion scenes I've ever seen uh, because uh, we, we go back to our comments about the constant earlier this uh, uh, season. We talked about how, how uh, just profoundly moving that show, uh, that episode was to so many people and that, uh, if people were not invested in the Desmond Penny romance by that point, they sure were after the constant. And so this is a great payoff for that. But a week later, so they've spent a week hanging out on this boat. Pretty cool. Not a bad way to, uh, you know, shake off a couple days of absolute trauma and horror. And they've all decided on this cover story and arranged to be quote unquote discovered in another part of the world, which then connects right back into the flash forward that you started for us. Frank and Desmond are going to lay low. So yes, they made it off the island and we haven't seen anything, anything of them in the flash forwards, but they're going to lay low. Of course, nobody knows Frank was ever even there or Desmond for that matter. So, and then lastly, we see the Oceanic Six paddle ashore on Mombata with their prop raft and boards and so forth and get rescued by some local folks. And uh, so the last uh, pieces of the timeline puzzle have fallen into place as we close out the present day Island stuff uh, on this episode. Kevin, what'd you think of the way that this all finally plays out here when we see the last pieces clicking into place? I think it works out really well, mm-hmm. and, but there's a lot of things Again, where you're seeing Sawyer's on the helicopter, so how does he get off, and where does he end up? Because mm-hmm. you know he's not one of the six, but he's on the the helicopter to start. Right. Of course, we had to resolve the death of Jin. Where does that happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, of course, gets his Christian Shepherd visits him and and gives him his uh, "You may go now" message. So it seems like he has repented fully. But then you got everybody else who's either made the uh, the conscious choice to stay on the island, and some other people like your your Sawyer and uh, Daniel Faraday's who have not, and uh, as a consequence have traveled with the island as well. Yeah. Um, not to mention though, you get like you said the reunion of Penny and Desmond. Who doesn't love that? And now because they've been on this this ship for a week, you kind of get an understanding of this break of where Desmond and Lapidus are able to go off and not be part of the Oceanic Six uh, and not have to explain away how the heck they were there <laughs> if they weren't even on the manifest. And then you have uh, their clever way of being put off on their own. And, and and so I think it's also important that they establish they had an entire week to put the story together, make sure everybody was on the same page, and then yeah. stage this rescue uh, and go back to life uh, on land, basically living this lie. So it wasn't like they just had a little bit of time to put it together. They had a whole week to get the story as airtight as they possibly could. And I'm sure that was a lot of conversation with that too, because I think that Jack first had to convince everybody that this had to be done, but then they also figured out how they had to figure out how to be able to explain details, you know, like, well, you were six months pregnant. How'd you deliver the baby? You know, that sort of thing to be prepared to talk about all that. If you're going to pull off a massive cover up, but yeah. Now, how do you think time has been to the donkey wheel? Because a lot of times I feel like when I hear people talk about it, they sort of speak it to it in a pejorative sense. Uh, by that, I mean, there was uh, even with our podcast, I was talking to somebody who listened to and they and they mentioned it to a mutual friend of ours. And I said, oh, I didn't even know they were into Lost. And he said, 
yeah, you know, he stuck with it longer than I did. You know, he stuck through the ice donkey wheel thing and all, and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> so we talk about these pivotal points in the show that people think are a little bit too ridiculous. Yeah, that's the impression I get for some people pointing out like, oh, this ice wheel moved the island. <laughs> what, what do you think about all that? Well, OK. First of all, I have a fun little bit of trivia about the donkey wheel that'll that'll segue into your question that I was going to mention anyway. While Lost was airing, one of the big things that became controversial every season was there was a specific person who went by the nickname the nickname of Lost Fan 108 who spoiled a couple of season finales. And you know, he would put it on spoiler websites where you didn't have to read it, but that it was out there and it really ticked off the creators because of course with a show like this, you know, you want the reveals to say stay, you know, hidden. The third season, they referred to their secret ending as the snake in the mailbox, which is, of course, a common expression to refer to something that shocks and surprises you, you know? Right. I did read about what you're about to talk about. About to talk about. So they said, okay, we're going to have a nickname for each of the big reveals in the season finales. They said, our nickname for the big reveal of the season four finale is the frozen donkey wheel. And nobody, of course, thought for a moment that there would be a literal frozen donkey wheel in the middle of the island. I remember watching that and thinking, wait a minute, that's an actual frozen donkey wheel. What the hell? You know, so, okay. but to get to the reaction to that, the reaction to the wheel. See, to me, that that actually kind of puts that the person you were talking about who said they stopped watching with the donkey wheel kind of puts them in a minority position. Not that there's anything. I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion. Everybody's entitled to watch a show for as long as it entertains them and then stop watching it when it no longer entertains them or if it becomes something that they didn't want it to be or, or weren't looking for. But honestly, to me, if you have made it through the smoke monster, the barracks with the sonar fence that repel the smoke monster, the smoke monster that can be summoned by going into an ancient room with hieroglyphics on it, people who can listen to dead people, the cabin that moves around the island that vanishes and reappears and with the person inside it that throws stuff around and looks like a dead doctor's uh, father. If you can't make, if you can make it through all that and then the idea of a frozen donkey wheel moving the island is what like really gets you. I, I don't know. I just, I'm not in line with that kind of thinking. Okay. I'll just say that as time went on with lost, it became more and more apparent that there were not going to be scientific explanations for what was happening on the show this was a show about a mystical magical place where you just have to accept that there's a wheel at the bottom of it that moves it for the sake of the story and some people were like that's not the show i'm signed on for i was i was wanting them to explain all this stuff like logical scientific or science fiction explanations so you know it just depends on the kind of show you're looking for that makes sense i do uh, yeah, it does make sense, and I agree that that person is an outlier, but here's here's how I'll put it in perspective and why okay. I ask time thinks of that. Okay. So you know when you're dating somebody, and they have these quirks of theirs, and at the time when you're dating them that you think they're cute, but once you you break up with them, you're like, man, those things were really annoying. Those things <laughs> sucked about that person. I, I'm more thinking of when people maybe who got to Lost and hated the finale or didn't like certain things that happened in season five or six. Like, you know what? Now that season sucked. Now that I think about it, man, that donkey wheel thing was really stupid. <laughs> you know, like, it. do you think that there's some people who maybe who didn't like it when they think back on certain aspects of Lost, the donkey wheel is one of those things they think was really dumb? I don't know anybody myself who has told me that they did not like the ending of Lost, who 
has specifically mentioned the donkey wheel saying like, well, that was really dumb. Like, I think most people were in it. You, you can categorize, I think, lost years into kind of three categories. There were people who were hardcore devotees from the beginning to the end. They were happy to let the show take whatever direction it wanted and just went with it. If it became, you know, more about magic as time went on, that was fine as long as it was well-written and entertaining. You have the people that got increasingly frustrated as time went on, but stuck with the show, hoping that something would come along that would sort of redeem it in their mind and then never did. And so they didn't like the ending. And then you had the people that stopped watching and came back for the finale and had no clue what the hell was going on. Right. I think anybody who, anybody who looks at the donkey wheel poorly in hindsight would have to fit into that second category of people, the people who stuck with it the whole time and then didn't like the ending and I don't know that the donkey wheel is something that would, ne especially you and I know a little bit more about where we're headed in these next two seasons. Mm. The donkey wheel to me is not like a linchpin of weird for lost the way that like, it, like the donkey wheel in season one would have stood out. The donkey wheel in season four to me doesn't remarkably stand out other than it's a really cool visual and something I was not expecting. And and I and I love the idea that you can turn a crank at the bottom of the island and it disappears. I just think that's really freaking cool. I just love that idea. I don't have to have a scientific explanation for it for me to think that that's neat. But your mileage may vary. Uh, flash time, or do we have more to say? Flash time. Let's do it. Okay, so we're back at the Santa Rosa Mental Institute, and we've uh, we're now more caught up in the, the the latter part of the three years because you see, Said has his feathered hair or whatever. He's he's working for Ben, but that <laughs> the, his right. his hairstyle is more of a, an indicator of that. He shoots somebody outside of the mental institute, then he goes inside. This is this is late. It's definitely well after after hours, and he goes to visit Hurley. And Hurley says, "You know, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Why should I join you?" And Said replies that circumstances have changed and that Jeremy Bentham is dead, supposedly killing himself two days ago. But he says that in a way that makes you believe he doesn't believe mm. that story. Yeah. Hurley does no longer want to call Jeremy Bentham by his alias, and he's about to drop the real name on us, which I'm sure has everybody going, because <gasps> it's like the first <laughs> scene in the in part three. But Said stops him saying that they're being monitored and mentions that he killed somebody who's been watching him uh, outside. And he says that he's taking Hurley somewhere safe, assures him he's not taking him to the island, and Hurley, because Hurley also does not want to go back, and he agrees to this. Hurley mentions he's been seeing dead people, and this entire time he's playing chess, and before he leaves, he finishes up his chess game, and he calls the invisible opponent Mr. Echo. So he's apparently been playing this chess game with one Mr. Echo, but it's not one of those instances like with Charlie where we can also see him. We don't see anybody sitting in the chair across from Hurley. Well, that's because they couldn't pay the actor enough to come back. No, no AAA <laughs> for this one. <laughs> Anything else uh, that you noticed about this particular scene? Just to, I, I do like how you can tell the time period by Saeed's hair. Yep. Good wig work on Saeed here, I'll say. <laughs> Maybe that's closer to the real actor's hair than it is. I don't know. Yeah. It, though. Okay, so we talked about Sun and uh, how the death of Jin has changed her as a person off the island. We talked about her taking over Pike Industries. Well, now we see her in London where she confronts Charles Widmore after he's having a, a business lunch of sorts. He's actually very cordial to her because he knows that uh, he, she introduced herself as being from Pike Industries and he makes a, a joking comment about owing her father lunch over a golf game. <laughs> but son basically says, let's cut the crap. We know you know who I am and that we're all lying about this island. 
but we have some common interests and she wants Widmore to call her when he is ready to discuss business and gives him a business card. And he asks her why she would want to help him and she does not give him a reply. So I guess I can say I did not expect Sun to be looking to partner up with Charles Widmore here. Definitely not. And I mean, the thing that the thing is that we know, we understand that the guys that Saeed is going around killing are Widmore's people. Right. Because he's working for Ben and Ben is essentially systematically eliminating Widmore's network of people. And so then for her to end up on that side of things is another one of those things where at the time I was sort of, I was concerned. It was very much like the whole thing of where Ben says he's going to kill Penny, where it's like, oh, I want Ben to get revenge on Widmore for killing Alex, but not by killing Penny. And so then I'm also kind of like, well, you know, Widmore is a scumbag, but I also understand why Sun would be mad at Ben and other people, you know, that like want to ally herself with him. So kind of mixed emotions. And it, but if she and if she's allied with Widmore and ends up being somebody that Saeed needs to kill, that could definitely put Saeed at odds. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's huge. That's um, huge. I don't so yeah, think Sun, she would do it, but so for me, Sun is certainly a very interesting person to see her life off the island. I'm very interested mm-hmm. in learning more about where that goes for sure. Well, and this is what I feel like they had to do because you know, for a long time I've said that you know how much I thought of the Sun and Jin relationship. So if you're gonna end that relationship, you have to take the surviving character and propel that character to like a whole new you know, dimension of their personality. And this seems like the logical extension of that. We see somebody who has now been embittered by what happened. And, you know, it's, it's cheesy to say, you know, hell bent on revenge. Like that's the only thing she lives for now. But then obviously, I mean, well, she's got a daughter. And so that matters to her, of course, but that doing something to write what happened to Jin is on her priority list, you know? Right, yeah, the the death of her husband has colored the balance of her life, basically. Yeah, yeah, that you couldn't have put it better. And yeah. and, and it's it is worth mentioning at the beginning of the scene, she gets a call from I assume her mother or caretaker, and she speaks to uh, Jiyun, their daughter, and yeah. she's at the age of speaking now, so you understand this is further along in the timeline, closer right. to the end of the three years in the beginning. Well, I think so. this is everything now is happening chronologically in the flash forwards. So okay, there we go. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of, we then jump to Kate, who is in bed and woken up by a phone call that is completely incoherent. Then she hears somebody else in the house who's in Aaron's room. She pulls out a gun and goes to the room. And it happens to be Claire who tells Kate, don't you dare bring him back. Kate wakes up. It's been a dream. She goes to Aaron's room. Nobody's there, but she's crying over him as he sleeps, telling him, I'm sorry. Um, now, the phone call, I believe, is something that was clarified in one of those clip shows that happened later. Okay. Uh, but if you play it backwards, the call says the island needs you. You have to go back before it's too late. Damn. Did I you did not, not know, that? know that? I did not. Okay. I'm sure I knew it from like 10 years ago when it first aired, but I didn't remember that. Okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it is hard to remember every little thing like that. It but, really is. <laughs> um, but, but I don't know how Kate would be able to have determined that's what it said when she fixed it up. Yeah. It was completely incoherent. Yeah. But it's just a dream, I suppose. It's, yeah, subliminal, you know. <laughs> subliminal message to go back to the island. This is the last we're going to see of Claire for a while. This, mm, was okay. annou- this was announced at the time, so this was not a spoiler to the audience that uh, Claire was not going to be in season five. It was very much like a Michael-style promise where, like, we will come back to this character and resolve them. But, of course, on the island, she gone. 
They don't know where she is. So did did they say why she wasn't going to be back? Did she take another project, or uh, was it just a writing choice, like a story reason? It was a story reason. It was this. We okay. were very deliberately making a character arc with Claire, where you know she's going to mysteriously vanish under these really bizarre circumstances that we saw in Cabin Fever that freaked us all out, and that that is not going to get resolved for a season because there's so much going on in season five that we can't really address that but we will bring it, we will pick it back up in season six. Okay. So then we get the final scene of the episode in the final flash. We're now we're, we're back to bearded drunk, high off pills. Jack, he goes back to the Hofstrahler funeral parlor. Did we mention um, the anagram from Hofstrahler in the season three finale? I don't know who we did. I think we forgot to mention it when we did the finale and then remembered to mention it at some other point, but just yeah. for the record, <laughs> it's flash forward. Yes. So he is, uh, again, drunk and high, but he busts into the funeral parlor to once again see the casket of Jeremy Bentham. Like you do. Yeah, and he even sees, like, a, we we see a clipboard that's that signs off on the cadaver of Jeremy Bentham. No one signed off on it yet, but you know this is who this is. Right. Uh, and he's startled by Ben, who has showed up after Jack here in the, in the funeral parlor. What we get here is that Jeremy, whoever he is, saw Jack and Kate, and he at least told Jack that Ben was off the island, too. And also told them that after Jack left, some very bad things happened. And Jeremy also told him that it was Jack's fault and he has to come back to the island. Ben is aware that Jack's been taking all these late night flights and how dark that is. But tells Jack the island will not let him come alone. All of them have to come back. Jack says this is impossible. And one of the things he mentions is that Sun blames him for, for Jin's death. Now, something Sun says to her father is that there's two men she blames for for Jin's death, one of them being him, and I guess the second one is Jack. You would think that maybe she would blame Ben or somebody else like this, but it's Jack she blames for Jin's death, um, hmm. which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I guess, man, I, it, it, to me it would be hard to pinpoint two people that created that situation, that set of circumstances. And I don't know why, G, I don't know why Jack would be – top of that list to me it would be ben but she might not understand everything she might not know everything that happened so we'll have to see but yeah you're right that's a good detail about the two specific people and if we're to assume that jack that she said that to jack at some point that maybe uh that he's kind of going on that i would not even be surprised if the two of them had not seen each other at all since the Oceanic Six press conference, you know, over three years, if you think about it, because she's, she's not, at, uh, they're, neither of them are at the party, the Hurley's party. You know, when uh, Hurley shows up to Suns to uh, meet Ji Yun, and he asks if anybody else came, and she says no, he says good. You know, <laughs> there's obviously, there's that tension there, but we don't see the two of them together at any point after the con- the press conference in the future. Yeah, and again, there's a deleted scene, uh, and I hate to keep mentioning these, but it's, no, no, again, please do. Uh, this is right outside the church before Jack gives his eulogy, where Nadia, Saeed, Hurley, Claire, and Aaron uh, all kind of meet up outside, and one of them makes a comment about, "Oh, his son going to be coming," and I forget who says it. I think it might be Saeed who says, "No," and I wouldn't expect her to. Wow. Okay. I so, didn't. Yeah, that I don't. I recall that I have a lot harder time remembering special features than like the rest of the show, but yeah. Wow. Well, again, it's all very fresh to me as I just, yeah, that's great. No, that's why it's good that I I really appreciate you going through and watching all the special features and stuff too, because it's not something I'm doing and, and it's, it's helping to expand the conversation a lot. 
It does. It does add a lot to the experience. I found it's been very fulfilling, Uh, but thankfully Jack seems like it's impossible to get everybody together, but Ben has some ideas on how to make this all happen. (laughs) And Jack's about to leave. And Ben tells Jack, well, I said, everybody, you have to bring him too," and pointing to Jeremy Bentham's casket and inside Jeremy Bentham's casket is the body of John Locke. And then we cut to lost. And that is the end of season four. Boom. Your initial reaction when you saw this live, then? I think by the time I saw it, I had pieced together that it was probably Locke. Not that they didn't do a good job of keeping it as tight under wraps as they possibly could, but I think I actually would have been more surprised if it had been somebody else because the contempt with which so many of the characters speak about Bentham, like if if the alignments work out really well, like Walt and Hurley seem to speak with either a little bit of fondness about Bentham or, or at least not outright disdain, but like Saeed and Kate and Jack all speak about Bentham. Like he's like crazy or that like they, they didn't like him or, you know, there's some animosity, right? You just put together those pieces. It seems like Locke's kind of the obvious choice. And then also, if you're going with, remember the other thing that we were all talking about at the time was like, who's the least likely person to ever like willingly leave the island? And that would be John Locke, the character that, you know, wants, that loves the island so much and will do anything to protect it, would willingly leave the island is like a big twist. So that it kind of becomes like the person going from being the person you least suspect to the person you most suspect because of that, you know, would be the reveal. So I don't know. I kind of, I, I don't, I'm not saying I called it. I thought, okay, I'll tell you what I thought, Kevin. I was down to either Ben or Locke until the scene where Ben shows up behind him. And then okay. I knew, then I knew it was Locke. And I think that was actually like, if you had asked the general community, it had boiled down to either being Ben or Locke, because again, the timeline thing being weird, Ben could have gotten off the Island and been, you know, assassinating people and stuff with Saeed for a while and then get killed and then end up in the coffin. And we already knew that Ben had aliases that he worked under and so forth. And so, you know, I thought it was one of those two guys. And then when Ben showed up, behind jack in that scene i thought okay well that eliminates the last close contender it's probably Locke. and something they did that i thought was really cool that i actually didn't know until i just read this yeah they filmed three endings of who was in the casket yes one was the real one of Locke, but then there was two fake endings where one was sawyer mm-hmm. and the other was desmond Yep. So this was obviously an attempt to maintain secrecy over who was in the casket because not only everybody shooting it wouldn't know, but the actors couldn't even say with certainty who it was. So this was a really smart way to keep it truly a secret who was in the casket. Right. Three different names would potentially get out there, uh, but they did air the fake endings of Sawyer and Desmond on Good Morning America the next morning. Yeah, there's a really funny Good Morning America clip of them watching all three endings. <laughs> Yeah, and that's how uh, there are screenshots you can see. I'm sure the clip's on YouTube somewhere, but there are you can see the the endings with Desmond and Sawyer both in the coffin. Isn't it also an extra on the DVD? I thought you could watch those as an extra. I didn't see it if it was on there. Oh, huh. Okay. Um, but yeah, so that was really cool. They did that, of course, secrecy being a big thing, and you mentioning that there was this this troll out there spoiling stuff from the yeah, yeah. 
of the utmost importance that they had to go to specific lengths to protect that. But and I don't even know. I mean, that's a whole separate. That's a, I guess, a philosophical debate. I don't know that I'd characterize that person as a troll more because, like, he wasn't going around posting it in places where people didn't want spoilers. He was posting sure. the information where, like, on spoiler websites where people were specifically looking to be spoiled. Having said that, I feel like even just doing that is sort of against the spirit of the show and so to me if you're somebody who's close enough to the show that you somehow have access to that knowledge i can see how it would feel like a betrayal to have that suddenly show up online and it can be really hard to avoid spoilers online you know i mean we all have been there where you know i remember my my wife has this one moment that she brings up again and again i think is the moment she stopped enjoying the tv show called the good wife where uh, a character's death was revealed like the next morning on the official Facebook page. Oh my God. Yeah. It was kind of like a screw you to people who didn't watch it live. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I, and that was like, I don't know, let's say four or five years ago. I don't think they would do that. I think enough has changed with like DVR and streaming now that even, even in just four or five years time, they wouldn't have made that decision these days to the very next day after the episode reveal a major death, but yeah, I could be bad. wrong. Wow. Yeah, that's that is that is completely crazy. <laughs> but yeah, about the okay. Good Wife is is post Lost and Lost is still in the days of TV shows on DVD and going on ABC. Right. Stuff, where they yeah. knew there was going to be lapsed viewership and and a sure. lot. Of things. So, I mean, it's one thing to po- to make a post that says, you know, what did you think of the finale of the show, and then like a warning, spoilers in the discussion below. Right. Posting the spoilers yourself. I mean, come on. Yeah, it was something like a. Uh, you know, tribute to this actor. We were sorry to see them go last night or something like that. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, that's painful. I, I yeah. feel, again, I feel for her. Yeah, that blows. So, but thankfully they didn't do anything like that with this because I know many, many people, including you, who caught up with it much later. So uh, it was a huge, huge reveal. I don't want to sound too cocky when I, because there are, <laughs> this, this show surprised me in so many ways. I'm not one of those guys like, oh, I saw that coming. With the lock thing, I did feel like I had it narrowed down to like probably who I thought it most likely was. Still a great reveal. And and I think the thing, the name of the game is this sets up so much that we have to learn next season. You know, that was the thing I was thinking is like, wow, we've like really season four for being this transitional season from the old lost to the new has set up so much. And now we're going to get all this payoff of like finding out what happened to Locke? What happened with these characters? How are we eventually going to get these people on back on the island? Because you know they have to get back on the island and you know so forth. So it was really great as sort of a stage setting thing. That and you also know that we're going to see in the flashes here is is Jack and Ben getting the band back together. Right. That was the other thing that Ben showing up kind of did for me. I was like, oh, wait a minute. These guys are going to be working together? What? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> The island brings yeah. people together in strange, mysterious ways. Mysterious ways, it does. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And what of the other people who are on the island and time traveled and all that fun stuff? Yeah. Well, the people who are on the island have disappeared. We don't know where or when they may have gone, but uh, we have a show that's kind of split again. You know, it's like uh, before we had, or I guess this season, we had half of them on one side of the island and half of them on the other. Now we have some people off the island and some people on it. So all characters that we care about very much so. And of course, we've heard that some very bad things happened after Jack and everybody left. So we've got a lot to learn about. So what were your impressions of the season overall? 
I really liked it. And I especially liked it even more after finale where I feel like it told a pretty compact season long story. It didn't answer every single question in Lost, but I think a lot of the questions raised about being off the island and certain aspects that were raised at the beginning of season four came full circle and were answered, I think, in a satisfactory way by the end of it. And I feel like this this whole season, and especially the condensed format, uh, allowed it to go at a, at a quicker pace, less filler. And I think this is a really strong argument for having for for cutting so many shows down from the 22 24 season format to 13 or so or less i i agree with you i've said before it's my favorite season after the first season i think the first season is just one of the best written seasons of television that i've ever seen it just like stands out heads above like all television pretty much but as far as lost seasons goes this one for all the reasons you said just a really tightly constructed narrative, great beginning, middle, and end, very satisfying to watch just on its own, forgetting the fact that it's like come, well, everything that comes before and after it. Great new characters that I love, both good and bad, you know, four great new protagonists that I like. The worst, the most dastardly villain that I've ever that has ever been on Lost, as far as I'm concerned, in Martin Kimi, who got a very fitting end gagging on his own blood at the bottom of the orchid station. But um <laughs> You know, I, I so it was just perfectly constructed, in my opinion. I just didn't feel like it was this episode. This season had maybe one episode in it that was like okay, and the rest were all great to phenomenal. And for for you know a season prior to that, having had some truly terrible episodes, was a great step in the right direction. And I was so pumped after the season was over to see where Lost was headed. Yeah, and I'm 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 pumped now. I think it's probably the most well balanced in season one too, of both of mythology and character. Yeah, things. I feel like the end of season three did a really good job, but in a lot of ways it was for for many viewers too too little too late. I think if there was only one disappointment I had in season four, Kevin, I think it was just that we we didn't get to see as much of Michael as I would have liked, um, and I know that that was largely as a result of the writer's strike. Harold Perrineau has also expressed that disappointment in interviews. It was this whole controversy where like. I guess it was the kind of thing where an actor opens up their mouth and then everybody's like, oh, do you hate the show now? Do you uh-huh. hate the producers? And they're like, no, no, no. I'm just saying, you know, it would have been nice to see him meet back up with some more of the people, you know, and not just basic. Because basically, because of the writer's strike, he he was literally, he was only in three episodes before the finale. That was it. So he was in a total of six episodes. And in some of those, it was very, very minor appearances. You know, that's counting the one where he showed up for like 30 seconds to like, reveal that it was Michael, you know? So he did not get a lot of screen time. And I, that was I, that bummed me out because I would have liked to have seen him interact with the other characters more. I feel like in a perfect world, if they had had, you know, two hours more to work with, that maybe he would have been one of the people who came back, you know, on the raft with Saeed. And that would have given a, him a chance to talk to other people like, you know, oh, there's Jack, you know, whatever, and have to deal with all that the fallout from his actions, but we just never got a chance to get there. So we got a couple of brief moments of like him having a reunion with son and Jin. There was the scene where son told him that she was pregnant and, you know, he was genuinely happy for her. And then later told Jin, he, you know, you're a father, you got to go be with your wife. And, but other overall, I wish that we'd gotten to see a little more Michael. I don't know. What did you think? Did you feel like you got enough Michael or, 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 did you feel the same way? I, I do feel the same way that we could have used a little more. The episode that he got was great. But overall, I think, yeah, if you look back at what what he did, it is a little bit of a letdown that, that there could have been more 
to it, or even just the, the, the retribution part of it at the end could have been done a little bit better. Cause I got to tell you, I don't know about this whole freezing the bomb plan that he had set out. I don't know if that was uh, all it was cracked up to be in his head. You mean you didn't think it would work or you think it was just not dramatic enough? Both, but mostly the first. I was like, really? That's that's what we're going with here? Okay. I mean, <laughs> I, I understand that time's limited, resources are limited, so you right. do what you got to do. But I was just like, I don't know, man. This seems like it can only buy a little time, but the end result's still going to be the same. They had to figure out a way to try to make him a hero and be redemptive. One of the things that I, I uh, actually neglected to mention because we did try to you know speed run through these recaps is that right before he uh dies before the the, um c4 blows up he sees a vision of uh christian shepherd saying you can go now michael yeah which of course is a follow-up to the whole thing of like he can't die until because the island's still not done with him well apparently that was the signal that the island was done with him so basically uh, Michael's purpose was to come back long enough to, I guess, I guess he period, I guess he did a number of things. We just didn't really see them directly referenced. Like, you know, by sabotaging the engine room and stuff like that, he kept the mercenaries from getting to the Island for a long time. He gave the, the characters a lot more, you know, advanced notice that this threat was coming by doing that. But then ultimately his heroic act was like keeping the bomb from blowing up long enough to get everybody with the exception of himself and Jin off of the freighter to save their lives. So do you feel like he found redemption in that act or was it, was it lacking? I guess he did it when you, when you put it all together that way, it just in the moment in the episode, it didn't feel like this maybe dramatic heroic moment that I came mm-hmm. to expect. Yeah. It, I mean, boy, it w- I mean, gosh, it would have created some real tension if he had come running out at the last second and be like, Hey, can I get on that chopper too? And Jack looked at him, you know, I mean, yeah. that would have been a potential for some really, uh, some really uh, tense character moments. Um, yeah. I think he knew though that he couldn't, I think he knew yeah, that his, I think you're he, right. he was destined to die on this freighter. Uh, well, yeah, I think you're right. I and mean, when he said that, he said, I'm here to die. Yep. So. All right. Well, I think we're doing a bad job of keeping this short. So let's do our superlatives here. Okay. First, the episode centric ones for the numbers. I have that it is eight. It was eight fifteen p.m. when Saeed kills the man outside of the Santa Rosa Mental Hospital. You see that on his little radio clock. Okay. The building that Jack parks at across from the funeral parlor has the address of sixteen fifty eight, and then eight people in total make it off the island. You have the Oceanic Six plus Frank and Desmond. So yes, uh, that is of of importance to note. Those are the only numbers that I got. Okay. No Sawyer nicknames. I don't think he's only in like one or two scenes here, and right uh, yep. was. I guess probably too out of breath from swimming all the damn way back to the island to have any <laughs> witticisms for a drunk, uh, yeah. drunk Juliet. Um, and then uh, would you want to do music and books now? Sure. Um, so once again, no books. Again, something things moving at such a fast pace with these episodes that we don't have time to stop for that sort of thing. But for music, we do have one incidental track, and that is Gouge Away by Nirvana. That is what is Jack is listening to in his Jeep as he is making his return trip to the Hofstrahler Funeral Parlor. Very appropriate for his mood. This uh, post-Oceanic 6, uh, everything's terrible and I want to die, Jack Shepard, um, kind of being like listening to some downer music. I hate to correct you, but Gouge Away is by the Pixies, not Nirvana. Oh, shoot, you know what? Spoiler alert, I think later in the C- series, Jack is going to listen to a Nirvana song. So he is listening to a Nirvana song in the season three finale. 
Oh, that's where I got him mixed and, up. And funny Senseless enough, Apprentice or something, right? Yeah, Senseless yes. Apprentice. And funny Senseless. enough, Kurt Cobain in an interview uh, mentioned that Gouge Away was a song that he feels that he accidentally mimicked when writing Smells Like Teen Spirit. Are you serious? I I am serious. So I, I assume some writer or somebody knew that and, and put that in there as a nice sort of mirroring of uh, Jack going back to the funeral parlor with this Pixie song. And also, perhaps by coincidence, perhaps not, if the album that this song is on, it is track number 15. Ah, okay. So, so I, I'm going to go ahead and just say, just leave that in and make me look like an idiot for saying Gouge Away is by Nirvana. I will. But it does explain how I pulled Nirvana and just randomly yes. didn't pull it out of my ass. So he was listening to a Nirvana song at the end of last season. Correct. Okay. That makes me feel a little bit better. Okay. Gouge Away by the Pixies. Sorry. I'm not somebody who listens to a lot of the Pixies. So that's me neither. But so that was our incidental track. Then we have five from the season four soundtrack. Two good ones would be one is called Lying for the Island which is the Desmond Penny reunion music. Gotta love it when that Desmond and Penny love theme swells up, especially in a a scene like that. So that's a good track. The uh, Lock of the Island track is another one I really enjoyed. That is when Ben moves the island. So gets really creepy, mysterious, and then epic as we build to this uh, crazy, insane moment when the island vanishes in some white light. Those are the two that I'd recommend from this episode. But lots and lots of tracks in the season four soundtrack from this finale. Another just real solid soundtrack overall. Plenty of tracks to pick out if you're in the mood for something suspenseful or in the mood for something a little more like uh, character based. So, all right. So, how about let's get to our overall superlatives here? Save the, right. the, the best for last. I'm going to say, Ben, for quotes and scenes, we'll be a little more lenient. So, how about some quotes of the episode you really enjoyed? Well, we've got a great one from Hurley's mother. I think you probably know the one that I'm talking about. And, and it's one of mine, too. Ugo? Jesus Christ is not a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's classic. And it's a throwback, too. I mean, you got to love when they even tie in the, the you know, the flashes. Like, it's a throwback to the gold Jesus statue that she had specially made for herself when when Hurley got rich. And the same one that she then put her fingers over its ears when she <laughs> when she referred very vaguely to having sex with her own husband. That's what's so funny about it. Also got from Ben Linus, how many times do I have to tell you, John, I always have a plan. Uh, if you want to get all mushy-gushy, I love the show. I've got It's Not an Island, It's a Place Where Miracles Happen. When Locke says that, there's this sparkle in his eye where I'm like, oh, he loves the island. So we'll see how that turns out for him, though. And then was he talking about what I think he's talking about? And then Ben says, if you mean time traveling bunnies, then yes. <laughs> that was one of mine, too. OK, why don't you start with the ones for the last? So I don't so I don't uh, steal any more years. Well, I've just got one more and it's another okay. it's another lock and Ben one where okay. after, where after Ben kills Kimi, Locke says, you just killed everybody on that boat. And Ben very coldly just says, so. <laughs> Yes, he is the petulant six-year-old once again that we have seen him to be. All right, I've got one more then from you, this or for you. This is Frank. He says, Jack, I know I'm new to this group, but isn't this the part where everybody starts jumping up and down and hugging each other? And that's <laughs> right when they get rescued. Right. Yeah, so uh, lots of good quotes in this episode. What about, do we want to do moments now or asshole idiot next? Let's do moments. Okay. Um, there's crazy ones like the donkey wheel, the island disappearing, yeah. press conference, all those things. But the two that I that I put down for me were 
Sun watching the freighter explode. And of course, her husband, mm-hmm. we talked a lot about how great mm-hmm. Sun was in that scene. And then, of course, Desmond and Penny reuniting. Yeah, those are both great scenes, of course, definitely. Um, let's see. I have when Ben is putting a whole bunch of metal shit in the time travel chamber, the moving of the island, of course. And then I put the return of the others. Because, again, I just was so excited to see those characters come back after having spent a season with these mercenary guys as our primary antagonist. I was like, hey, it's those. I remember those guys. And also, I think it was doubly happy. I mean, I know that in Cabin Fever, the episode uh, that you covered last last week, uh, you know, we had Richard Alpert in that. But, you know, this was all hot off the heels of Kane having been canceled, the TV show. And so Nestor Carbonell was free to do other work again. And it becomes one of those things where it's like, well, I don't want to wish ill on Nestor Carbonell and say, hey, I hope his series doesn't succeed. But at the same time, I'm greedy and I want him back on Lost. Yeah. So when he showed back up in his other's tatters, I was like, hell yeah, Richard Alpert. He's back. And I think another great quote going along with that is when Locke shows up to the others and he says, you know, welcome home to Locke. Yeah, yeah. Really meaningful. I mean, you know, we, we have a lot to learn there too about like what the hell has – Richard Alpert been doing spying on John Locke his whole life and that sort of thing. So, yeah. And yeah. and seemingly strange that he shows up to the others and the others all understand what's going on. Yeah. And it's funny to think from their perspective too. I mean, that's what has it been? Uh, I guess how long did I mean season two, sorry, season four didn't even take like a full two weeks to unfold, did it? It no. happened over like nine or ten days. Yeah. So like a couple weeks ago, these people were like hanging out with Locke with his, you know, father tied to a giant pillar. <laughs> Uh, and then they all left for the island with him being theoretically humbled. And then he came back with his father's dead body. So, you know, there's a lot that's transpired, but they they remember that guy, that guy who they thought was special and then came back with his father's dead body. So I don't know. That's kind of cool. Got an asshole idiot or two for me. I still narrowed it down to one. OK, with the understanding that Kimi is the internal asshole idiot for this season. Yes. Uh, but I ironically gave it to Ben for killing Kimi and subsequently everybody on the freighter. Mm-hmm. However, I do have this impression now that Ben understands, and of, of course he is, uh, for lack of a better term, a slave to the island. The island is going to save those who need to be saved. Mm-hmm. So even if he kills Kimi and the freighter is supposed to explode, the island is going to put into place to make it so everybody who needs to survive and who needs to be there to serve the island in the place they need to be. So when he says so, it's very cold, but I also think for him – if he and Locke are on the same page of protecting the island, what he just did to Kimi and the freighter isn't going to matter. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah. But I still gave it to him as the asshole idiot. <laughs> I, 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 it's, it's earned. I have him as one potential. I have also Jack for not believing that Locke moved the island when they all saw him move the island. I love the scene where like it literally disappears in front of them and then later on the raft – Turley's like, wow, he actually did it. He moved the island and Jack like, no, he didn't. And Hurley's like, really? Because if you got another explanation, I'd like to hear it. I'm like, that's good on Hurley for standing up to Jack a little bit there because usually he doesn't do that, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, so I gave it to Jack for still still not even beginning to accept that there's any sort of mysticism or supernatural elements of the island even after seeing it disappear in front of his eyes. Oh, good episodes. I'm really glad to have finished season four with such a bang. I really enjoyed rewatching this. It's been a long time. 
it has been a long time. And like I said, some really good extra features here. Some other stuff I didn't mention, but I really enjoyed watching was there's a, a feature called the Island Backlot Lost in Hawaii, who they go about explaining how they would transform parts of Hawaii to look like other parts of the world. That's really cool just to see how much work's put into that. Oh, there's, of course, Lost the Missing Pieces, which we discussed all the way back on episode uh, 37 of this podcast. So you can go back and listen to that. But uh, those are all there. If you didn't get a chance to watch them the first time around, you could watch them and then come listen to us. One that I really enjoyed, Ben, was The Right to Bear Arms. And I almost didn't watch this because I thought, is this just going to be some boring explanation of all the different types of firearms used? Mm, on Yeah, island? yeah. Because not not a huge gun person, but I'm so glad I did because it talked of it, it talked about um, Gregory Nations, the gentleman who's who was kept in charge of keeping track of all the guns and how there were six to start with in the briefcase, and he was so relieved when uh, they found the the gun room in the Swan, and he's like, "Oh, great, I'm done following all these guns." But he wasn't. And then you got the freighter people bringing their <laughs> firearms on board, and uh, and even the the characters kind of take the piss out of themselves talking about like. The, the whole thing we talk about where somebody has to unload and l- reload a gun to show they know how to use it. Yes. Um, so it's something that is not just something we're making fun of, but everybody on the cast and crew understood was a, a little bit of a silly thing. <laughs> uh, even the, uh, the actor who plays Sawyer um, mentioned like, oh, just, you know, need a way to kill time in a scene and just play around with the gun a little bit. <laughs> I think something that becomes more, I, I've seen this a couple times already, uh, but I think becomes more uh, prevalent in these last couple seasons too, is whenever somebody like moves with a gun, the gun cocks. There'd be like a couple guys standing around with guns and then something startles them from behind. They like just swing their guns up in response and the guns sound like they automatically cock. And then the the last thing I, I didn't get a chance to watch the whole thing, but there is a live performance of the score uh, by the Honolulu symphony pops of some of the, composed Michael Giacchino music from the show. Oh, nice. Which is a lot of fun. So you just need some background noise. I, I, you know, it's one of those things that I don't think is like, they, they do put some clips of the show in there without the, the, them talking because you want to hear, hear the music. They, so they pair it up with like where it's from in the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think it's better background noise. That is something to sit and watch intently for 25 minutes or however long it is. A really strong collection of bonus features here. So if you're just watching along on Hulu, I do think it's worth your time to to seek out the discs themselves yeah. at a good price or to even just go on YouTube and, uh, and search around. I'm sure you can find most of that stuff at this point. One thing I guess I should mention since we're talking about searching around YouTube for special features and, you know, like tertiary material. If you're watching for the first time, you may want to actually not watch the um, Comic-Con video that was done between seasons four and five. And the only reason I say that is because it was basically something that they later decided to retcon. So you're only going to end up confusing yourself a little bit or be mildly disappointed. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a free country. You feel free to watch it. Just know that like what the video amounts to is it ends up sort of getting retconned a little bit. So it's it doesn't. It doesn't fit in neatly the way that like the outtake from the orchid video fits in between seasons three and four. So just, just if you're, if you're poking around the interwebs and you see that, just know that it's not necessarily going to be end up, end up being Canon. Anything else to say on uh, this, these episodes season four, before we get out of here, I think that's it folks. We're over halfway done with this show. Season five begins next week. And that's the, the last of two seasons of loss. So Uh, If you've got questions or anything else you want to say about the show, time is running out. So be sure to follow us on social media at Lost Pod. 
Email us at lostpodquestions at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at kford13. And uh, yeah, just keep passing around the show. I feel like our listenership has gone up with the last few episodes. We really greatly do appreciate it. Go back and listen to ones you have missed because uh, it's we only have a few more weeks with Ben and I spending. Yeah. Well, and I would definitely encourage people to to like send in their thoughts and their opinions, whether it's reactions to stuff we said or things that, uh, you know, as we get to certain episodes, we can talk about certain topics, particularly now, because I think the last two seasons of Lost are going to be controversial uh polarizing i would say they're they're polarizing that's exactly right and and i sort of drift to the opposite pole that a lot of lost fans do so i'm sure that i will probably say some things that if you are someone who used to watch lost you might disagree with and i i invite healthy discussions so i would love to hear from anybody who feels strongly about these last two seasons because there's there's certainly a lot that that people had strong opinions on I don't know if I made this clear, but this podcast is the only definitive and correct opinion of loss there is to be. So, oh, I didn't realize that. Well, maybe then it's no no point in sending in your opinion. <laughs> Everything's been decided. Well, I mean, you could say your opinion if you like, but just understand you're wrong. You know. Okay, fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. That's well, what the- what does that mean for when you and I disagree? The universe explodes, right? <laughs> right. So dividing by zero. This is the. Uh, Mr. McClure, what does DNA stand for? And then it goes the end on the fan. (laughs) Well, thanks everybody for listening. We've had so much fun doing this and we'll be back again next week as usual to talk the season premiere of season five of Lost right here on From Broadcast Depth. All right, see you then.